You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I know why I've waited, know why I've been blue. Prayed each night for someone exactly like you. Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. And Mary Bland. You two live in the building. You must swing, right? Wrong. Good night. We're so lucky to have found each other. A typical American couple. I know. Good night, dear. Sweet dreams. With a typical American dream and typical American problems. You are through at Clay Liquor. Mr. Leach, I'm sure the bank has nothing to worry about. It's going to get everything that's coming to it. The bank wants to see what it's getting into. With the Blands, life was just a rat race. A cartoon mouse. Oh, great. Trigger likes you already. Oh, we like B&D, but we don't like S&M. We met at the A&P. But they found a way to be it. Until Mr. Raul Mendoza, como esta usted? They met a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. I'm a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. Eating Raul. Is it a thriller? Is it a romance? This was very wrong. Is it a tragedy? Excuse me, may I sit down? Is it a comedy? Yes. But not the type that you're used to. Eating Raul. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and of course, joining me, Mr. Mike White. Is this podcast Michelin rated? No, maybe we can look into that. Also joining us this week, the host of the podcast, Proudly Resents, Mr. Adam Spiegelman. Whip me, beat me, make me write bad checks. <laughs> This week, our special Thanksgiving episode, we're going to serve you an extra-large helping of the 1982 comedy Eating Raul, directed by Paul Bartel. Eating Raul stars Bartel and Mary Warnoff as Paul and Mary Bland, two kind of conservative folks living in the debauched playground of L.A. who realize that the ads on the back page of that alt-weekly could lead them into the wallets of perverts and help to fund their American dream, their own restaurant. The only problem? How do you get rid of the bodies? That's when they meet Raoul, played by Robert Beltrand, who may just have the answer. Eating Raoul is a truly independent film shot by Bartel, best known for Death Race 2000, and it was done on a shoestring and has become a favorite of cult fans everywhere. So much so that the Criterion Collection put out a beautiful edition of the film on DVD and Blu-ray just last year. So Adam is our guest. When was the first time you saw Eating Raoul, and what did you think? Well, I saw it when I was 13 on the VHS, and you just heard about how cool this indie film from California was, you know, and it was all like satire and to us it was punk rock and rock and roll. But then when I watched it, I just fell in love with Mary 
the the lead. Uh, she was to me, it was like the greatest thing ever. I don't know if there's more to it than that. I didn't know until I watched it again. There was an actual movie to it, but it had the movie had kind of like a, a screw you quality. It was just silly and submers- subversive and crazy. What about you, Mr. White? Gosh, I, I don't remember when I first saw it. It was probably also on VHS. I remember, for some reason, I remember the Siskel and Ebert review of it. And I guess it just seemed so different from the usual stuff that they were covering on the show that it really stuck with me. And then probably years later, or maybe not that long afterwards, I found it on VHS. And my folks loved it, and I loved it, And uh, which is unusual that I actually like a movie that my parents like, or vice versa. But yeah, just this one really stuck with me, and this is how I kind of got introduced to Paul Bartel, and I'm glad that I got introduced to him this way. What did Cisco and Niebuhr think of the movie? I remember they liked it a lot. I, I seem to remember that they enjoyed it, and it wasn't, you know, they they got the jokes, and they were kind of right along with it, if memory serves. I mean, it was just such a unusual movie for them to cover, you know, when they're doing the latest whatever Harrison Ford movie or, or whatever they're covering. But yeah, it was, uh, I was happy to see them talk about something so unusual. I think for myself, I got into it probably on VHS, but I haven't seen it in a long time until this Criterion edition came out and I just bought it because I knew that I liked it years ago and uh, wasn't disappointed going back to rewatch it again. But it definitely was one that I think I came to through uh, Death Race 2000 because obviously that one was sort of more in the more in the zeitgeist, at least if you were a, uh, a cult film fan. I was shocked that he did both films because this is so like, it's still much like a Woody Allen movie. You know, just kind of like a subversive punk rock Woody Allen. I keep using the same terms, but that's how I always saw it. It was like Woody Allen for us, you know, for, for people who want something crazy. So... Then he did this action film, which really was the same thing. It was also subversive and, and not an action film. You know, it just seemed weird he did both movies. Yeah, he had a really diverse career when you look at some of the stuff that he did, not just acting-wise, but directing-wise, like scenes from a class struggle in Beverly Hills and um, Gum, what was it, uh, Cannonball that he did. And you know, just some of the movies that he directed, It was he was all over the map. Oh, and then Less, Less Than the Dust. That's oh, awesome. yeah. Yeah, because we talked a little bit about that on the uh, I Am Divine episode, because that was, what, Divine's second-to-last film? Because, uh, what was Hairspray considered the last? Yeah, I think so, yeah. and one of the the few Divine roles where she wasn't working with John Waters. Yeah, but it felt like, am I wrong that it felt like Less Than Dust was like a, a John Waters film? It kind of felt like John Waters' light a little bit. There were some interesting parts to it. When I first saw it, I didn't really like it too much, but I watched it again recently, because of the I Am Divine episode, and um, liked it a lot more the second time. Eating around wool, what I find funny is that opening with all that stuff in L.A. Have you ever dealt with uh, any of that stuff living out in L.A. there, Mr. Spiegelman? Uh, like what? Like uh... like ketchup on your ice cream? <laughs> and other debauched things that is all about L.A. It is a known fact that prolonged exposure to just such a psychopathic environment will eventually warp even the most normal and decent among us. Yeah, L.A., it, it really actually brought me into L.A. It felt, I, I guess they shot it in the valley, but which is so funny there in Valencia is the country to them, and that's just way out in the valley. You know, it's just too far from the normal thing. But, yeah, I think it captured L.A. pretty well. Um, it just, uh, there are some weird people, but the feeling that, I hate to say it, but like the desperation of L.A. was really in this movie of... Uh, people who want to make it, you know, I mean, that's what we have in 
and people who were there because it's a lottery and they couldn't make it. So at least in this movie was for them to get a restaurant. But um, it made total sense that L.A. was the setting for this movie because that's where uh, people go and they try to be something else. And in the swinger scene, you know, I, I've never seen it because <laughs> no one's asked me. But um, <laughs> otherwise, you'd be right there. I would be right there. <laughs> uh, my number is. And, uh, you know. It, it it just seemed it all that seems so LA. The people, the way the people didn't give a shit, the way the people did care. I mean, obviously, I've never seen anyone that aggressive with a woman, you know. But it was just funny that uh, everyone it felt authentic, even though they're yeah. caricatures. Yeah, those swingers are really aggressive in this movie. <laughs> hey, how you doing, pal? What? My earlier what? Huh? Well, the early bird gets a pussy, am I right? Pussy? No, Jesus, come on. She looks like a party all over come, No, come on. <laughs> just out of here. <laughs> Mister, you better get out of here. And just hey, listen, you're not screwing her. Somebody's going to screw her. Might as well be me, man. I'll screw you later, sweetheart. Hey, baby. Hey. <coughs> Done that. <laughs> oh my god yeah it's like are you a swinger or a rapist because there's yeah there's no difference in that movie all swingers are rapists basically well it seems like so so many people are aggressive i mean even the guy who's running the the liquor store where paul is working and then of course the the robber that comes in but i think my favorite is the guy that works at the uh, porn shop. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> when he's poking Paul with that huge dildo and everything. <laughs> so good. I love that he had such pride in uh, the porn shop. Okay, your vibrator started at 1095 and go up. We've got the salami, the man of war, and alien. Just give me the cheapest one. Wait a minute, there's nothing cheap about my store. You mean inexpensive, don't you? Isn't that what you meant? Yes, that's what I thought you meant. Yeah, John Paragon showing up, who's better known to most people as being Jombie from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, really? Oh, he was fantastic. Yeah, that also felt authentic. Not that I know, but uh, <laughs> that was the most realistic part. The cheap apartments and everything, it just looked like L.A. on the fringe. And that was uh, perfect. North Hollywood is where they're from, I'm guessing. No offense, I think North that Hollywood. Was, I think that was really what made me fall in love with the movie was mary's line about selling your mother's fabulous 50s furniture and just the decor in the room i just love the set and everything and then yeah to your point earlier just the desperation of these characters and just how they're like this little bubble of like not normalcy because they're so bland that they go beyond that but just like it's them against the world and everybody is trying to get ahead and everybody's trying to get a piece and everything. And they're the only ones like that don't have the money and that are really trying to, you know, fulfill their dream. It was great is that everyone, and, and this is, uh, yeah, I can speak for LA cause that's where I live, but they were above everyone else who was living like a normal, a normal person in LA, the swingers, everybody, they were normal, but they were above those normal people. And then as soon as they could, they jumped in and joined it and then killed them. So they were worse. But I felt like as soon as they had the opportunity to be a swinger, they took a chance and went in. And I thought that's also kind of an L.A. thing. Like, I'm too good to care about movies and care about what celebrities and this and that. Next thing you know it, you're driving around, you know, doing certain things. So that was pretty cool. The satire in here, I think, is pretty great. And especially when you consider it's, what, 81, they probably made this. It took a while. And you'll hear... Uh, in the interviews, how long it actually took them to do this. And to me, it kind of is the um, – it, it's almost a satire of Reagan, but Reagan hadn't even been in office that long. 
because uh-huh. there's this whole sort of backlash on the free love swinging of the 60s and 70s and that whole counterculture. And it's almost kind of talking to the idea that time we're getting more conservative in America and it's becoming money, money, money. And then this whole thing about let's go back to the old times, right? So the 1950s, they're sleeping in two beds. And then also it's very American in that violence, that's okay. But sex, uh-uh. Right. Right, he hits the guys over the head, and they're okay with that. But yeah, no, no problem whatsoever. I love how nonchalant they are about murder, <laughs> and how the, how easily they explain it away too. Where it's like, well, he was a person, but now he's just a bag of garbage. You know, just one line takes care of everything. There's no moral quandary whatsoever. And these are swingers, right? So they're just filthy people who would go out and spread disease, right? Who have a lot of money. Apparently all swingers have a lot of money. They carry a lot of cash with them. and uh, But I love that. Yeah, they kind of just explain the movie away quickly in one line that swingers are all dirtbags and they're transient. No one gives a shit about them. Okay, <laughs> let's kill them and take their cash. Do you realize that we have made almost $1,000 in two days tax-free? Just by killing people. Horrible sex-crazed maniacs that nobody in the world would miss. I wonder how much we could make. If we really put our minds to it. And their magazine was, it was Hollywood, it was like the Hollywood rag. So they're kind of more than just the LA Weekly, which is like the Village Voice, you know, the alternative paper. But it seemed like it was their, uh, the variety. <laughs> so I love that. That in the trades, you know, people are looking for sex. You killed two people for less than a thousand dollars? One of them shortchanged us. It seems like a lot of work for not so much money. As a matter of fact, it was easy. We lured those people here with an ad in the Hollywood press, and then I hit them over the head with this. The Hollywood press? That's right. This is Naughty Nancy. No. And cruel, Carla. No, I don't believe it. You don't believe it? Show them the ad. Come here. Oh, man, that's fantastic. You know... I was going to answer that ad myself. I got to hand it to you. You guys got a very original scam going here. Well, it was mostly Mary's idea. Paul's just being modest. It is so sweet to see such a loving couple as yourselves. Well, it makes sense with the casting couch and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, and in that world, the casting couch definitely existed. You're right, Rob. This definitely... I don't know what it was about the way that the pendulum... The pendulum couldn't have swung that fast. But I definitely think maybe that's why this movie was noticed so much more and did get you know national attention and everything was because it was in the right place at the right time. By 1982, we did have two years of Reagan and his kind of you know city on a hill kind of idea. New Morning in America. I think we were just talking about that recently, and you know this was really you know speaking to that, even though. I don't know if they were necessarily aware of that when they were making it. I think, you know, it just happened to to capture that right at the right time. And I think it's funny, too, that they get us to root for murderers. (laughs) They're our friends and we like them. Yeah, and that Raul really, I have no problems with Raul either. And even though he's like trying to steal Mary away from Paul and he's he could be the most despicable character but I guess the way that Robert Beltran plays him he's just so charming and you know you know that he's not necessarily doing right by Paul but still you're kind of rooting for him along the same way and you almost kind of feel that Paul doesn't care about the fact that Mary and Raul are having sex he just wants the money <laughs> 
Like he doesn't feel offended by the fact that his wife's cheating on him. They kind of brush that under too. First of all, remind me not to have Mike around my wife because they don't think <laughs> that you're more. I don't agree with those morals. But um, yeah, he no, but he starts screwing with Raul when he realizes that um, he's sleeping with his wife. So he goes out and tries to get him deported and tries to get him fired. You know, he tries to screw with him back. But when he finds out his wife's cheating on him, he's like, ah, eh, no big deal. Yeah, but don't try to steal from Paul because he's got his dream. He wants that country kitchen. <laughs> right, he's willing to let it go. The whole thing that they've talked about with political scandals, right, is that Democrats are sex scandals and then Republicans are money-hungry scandals. So it's kind of funny that Paul's like, oh, the sex, whatever, just give me the money. So that kind of fits in, I guess, to this conservative side of him at the time. They made it clear they weren't having sex anyway. And it wasn't until Raul that she realizes she enjoyed sex. Yeah, that whole double bed, I love Lucy kind of setup that they had was great. And they even have, like, matching pajamas, right? <laughs> that was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I kind of like that. Really, Mary is almost, I would say that she's kind of the protagonist of this in the way that she has a much bigger arc in that she does kind of become aware of her sexuality and aware of drugs and all this. And then, yeah, I love at the end, she just kind of, you know, like you were saying, brushes it all away. It's like, oh, well, he gave me this drug and then he raped me. And it's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we got more plot. Let's move on. Right. I think that because of the kind of shoestring budget they were shooting this on, that it almost helped, you know, that we've got a lot of different scenes. We've got. A lot of cuts, I was noticing the last time that I watched this, that it moves really fast, and even within scenes, that there are a lot, a lot of cuts. And I don't know if that's just because they were doing the shooting on short ends or what it was, but, you know, these things, they move along, man. Like, the party at the swingers' place, you know, you are, you're hopping, you're going right through there, and I, I really, I think that helps this movie, too, is that not only are they kind of pushing aside the more what could be troublesome aspects of it, but just, you know, they are moving, man. There's just, we are going as soon as the movie starts, you know, you got a lot of cuts in that opening montage and they just keep with that same pace throughout. And it's only 83 minutes. So it's, it's quick. Wow. And I, like the, the party scene, it, it, I felt like they went so fast because they didn't have enough extras. Cause a lot of shots were against close to a wall. So you, the wall took up a lot of the space, and then they would have a person like walk around in the background. So it seemed like there's a lot more people there. And they cut around the lack of extras. Well, yeah, that they could all fit in one hot tub was, was pretty good. It <laughs> <laughs> blew my mind as a kid that they would do that. that he's, oh, and he just yeah. killed them. He killed all these people in the hot tub, and then he's like, all right, now let's move on. And I just love the way that they all slump over at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know, did you think the opening was necessary to set up how sleazy Hollywood was? It really works for me. I don't know. I mean, it just kind of sets that world and really kind of puts Paul and Mary against it. I don't know. Did it work for you? It, it did that to me. Like, it, it took me out of... I didn't remember it the first time I saw it. This time, I, if I hadn't seen the movie before, I would assume it was some kind of weird documentary. But it put me in that 50s mindset that is an innocent time. and They're innocent people in a fucked up world. Right. And uh, and they get corrupted by it. So, yeah, it really helped me out, I thought. Yeah, I liked it. It was just a weird choice, but definitely liked it. Well, it's like there are certain jokes in there that, it, you know, it took me a long time before I finally 
I don't know, either got them or just acknowledged them. Like watching it again recently, and um, I think it's when Raul visits Mary at the hospital, and you hear the announcement over the loudspeaker about that the male nurse's dance is going to be canceled. And it's like, okay, you know, that was good, but it took me a long time before I finally you know, realized that that's what was going on. <laughs> it was funny because they say that twice. And I thought, why do they have to say that twice? That was for you. That's what they had to say. It's twice. from Mike White. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just in case for those idiots in the audience that didn't hear it the first time. It, there you go. They did it. And just some of those little comments and stuff, especially at like the swinger party, there are little comments going on throughout. It yeah. let you know that it wasn't, that he knew that anything that was bad in a film were low budget, they knew it was bad and low budget. And that anything that didn't make sense, you know, like it let you know that they knew what they were doing. I felt like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely brought us in, you know, and I think that's what helps with that opening too, is that he kind of is, is bringing you in and saying, this is going to be silly. And, you know, we know that it is, and you're coming along for this ride with us. So I, I kind of like that he does that. I mean, it, it feels very much, you know, you're, you were using the term punk rock and stuff, and I can definitely feel that sensibility and i can feel that you know the, that whole idea of punk being this kind of inclusive experience where it's just like hey come on you know you're cool whatever's going on with you come on in and you know come on into the club kind of thing and that's the way that this movie feels it feels kind of like you know it, like this you know inclusive experience and then also it feels like an old friend when you go back to it all these years later i mean i've watched this two or three times just in the last few months and when i popped it in for the first time in years it was just like, wow, yeah, this really, you know, it, it feels like a a piece of, you know, me growing up kind of thing that I forgot that I'd e- even, you know, had before, but it sure feels right. It was like one of those uh, USA up all night, night yeah. night type things. Exactly. Yeah. Waiting for Julie Brown to come out and interrupt it every once in a while. <laughs> Ruin something good. <laughs> <laughs> come on. I was enjoying this. <laughs> sort of the fourth leg of the table though is doris the dominatrix so if it's paul mary raul now i'd say doris and she is so good susan sager is so good in this um i especially love this scene like you were talking a little bit about where she's with the little boy and she's trying to talk to them about getting into the business and how to do that and then when he as you were saying uh paul sends her out to sort of mess with Raul as a nurse and an immigration agent. It's just so funny. She does such a great job in like having a character for all three of those plus having her like self at home just taking care of her, I guess her son in that scene. Oh, and the blind nun. I love the blind nun. <laughs> it's such a stupid throwing thing where she, you know, falls off the chair and everything. Well, she and misses like, the chair by a mile. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I told you, I think these guys are having the greatest time. I know this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't usually go for, you know, slapsticky kind of stuff, but I was just like, yeah, that, that works every single time too. They weren't above <laughs> anything in this movie. No, it was still smart. It's right. It wasn't even death race 2000. Like he did a lot of ridiculous things, but it was still, you felt like he knew what he was doing. He was smarter than the material and you trusted him. And then the other cast, all the side characters that show up, like Buck Henry as the bank manager, and then Ed Begley Jr. as this hippie guy who comes, who's going to be one of the Johns, and um, Edie McClurg at the swingers party, and uh, John Landis. Did you see John Landis, by the way? No, what was he? 
He's in the bank, right? Yeah, he walks into the bank and like checks out Mary's ass real quick. It's like blink and you miss him. Oh, that's great. They had great cameos. Yeah, they had a lot of great people in that. Yeah, don't forget Billy Curtis in there as the uh, the man with the dog. Oh, and Ed Bigley Jr. as the yep. hippie. Yeah. I, I don't know why we keep doing this, Mike, but I realized that probably the guy who shows up now more in any projection booth podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just un, just we didn't do this deliberately. It just seems that the real Don Steele keeps showing up. He's been in oh, yeah. now four of our episodes. Hi, swingers. I'm Howard Swine, your horny host that's hung with the most. Oh, I hate the most. I'm big as a post and warm as toast. <laughs> I know. Pretty soon, you know, we might we might want to call this the Real Don Steel podcast, you know, <laughs> and just cover all the movies that he was in. What are some of the films that you guys done that he's in? Well, he was in Death Race 2000, right, right. of course, as Junior. And then he was in um, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Uh, work in the crowd at the, at the park. Wow. What else is he in? Um, he's in Gremlins. Oh, then he was in Gremlins. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's right. I forgot the radio DJ in Gremlins, and he's kind of there in in cameo form on the um, the billboard. Uh-huh. So yeah. apparently he was in uh, Targets too. So maybe you know we can get uh, Bogdanovich on and talk about Targets again with him. Yeah, that's right. We're renaming it the Real Don Steel Podcast. Welcome. <laughs> if you could do your opening, that'd be fantastic. He's got a well, great voice. It's kind of hard. He's, he passed away. Well, then you know it's not worth it. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's not making any more new material. So, but we're, I mean, we're going to be talking to Joseph McBride in a little bit. And I know that he uh, uh, did some work on the uh, Rock and Roll High School. So maybe that'll be an episode sometime. That's a great one. It's so funny. At that time, now they're running out of my head, but movies like this and Rock and Roll High School were all coming out at once. And I think it was like it was like a movement of these weird films, and that's why I thought that's why I associated with punk rock because the Ramones obviously was in rock and roll high school, but uh, they seem like they all came from the same school of kind of like fun, kitschy, alternative films, not serious, not taking itself serious. Uh, well, they totally did. They came from that Corman school. I mean, that's where Bartel made Death Race Two Thousand. That's where Rock and Roll High School was made. I mean, this kind of fits in. And Mary Warnov and Paul Bartel were in all these things, like Hollywood Boulevard. I think is another one that fits right into that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I, I can totally see this having that kind of anarchic spirit of the Corman school. Yeah, and it fit the eighties. And also, Paul Bartel started out as an underground filmmaker in the late 60s. And I think we talked about this before we recorded the episode, Mike, about how uh, Bartel's stuff in this one kind of remind you a little bit of Robert Downey Sr. and Putney Swope when we did that. And what's funny is on the Criterion, there is a um, there are two of his shorts, Secret Cinema and Naughty Nurse. And actually, a Naughty Nurse is uh, Robert Downey Sr. So it's kind of funny that he got brought up in our discussion before, and then he's uh, got a part in one of Bar- in one of Bartel's films. Because in terms of the New York underground scene, I would say that the stuff that Bartel was doing was much more humorous than some of the other more serious art underground people. Well, yeah, I guess it kind of fits. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about De Palma, and he was also in that same you know arena. And I would say that he. You know, wasn't taking himself too seriously either with like "Hi, Mom" and greetings and those kind of things. So, I wonder if the uh, the East Coasters were a little less serious than the West Coasters or something, because that's where Dante came from. Also, they kind of imported his him over there. But yeah, if folks haven't seen Secret Cinema, I mean, I totally recommend that. Naughty Nurse was pretty good as well, but Secret Cinema, 
absolutely love that. And they did a uh, episode of Amazing Stories that was basically the exact same story, uh, and Bartel directed that as well. So I would say either one, but really the original is is where it's at. How do you see that? Just on the Criterion Collection? Both uh, Secret Cinema and Naughty Nurse are on the Criterion. I have the Blu-ray, so it's on there. I'm sure it's on the DVD as well. Or you can just go to your Blockbuster on the corner. Oh, oh yeah, just run so, right down there. So easy, so easy. So easy. But, yeah. but the thing that's funny is, remember when we talked to Robert Downey Sr., and he was talking about the underground scene in New York at the time, and he talked about going to see these underground films and just how painful they were to watch, Not the one, yeah. and how he wanted to put humor into them because everyone was so serious and he talked about how bad the Warhol stuff was to sit through, especially as he <laughs> said, you know, that one where he had one shot of the empire state building for six hours. <laughs> it's like, how can you sit through that? So I, I definitely see sort of that same kind of anarchistic spirit at times, um, with, with Paul Bartel. It seems like if yes. you're going to do that, it has to be funny. You know, if they're going to hit something over the head politically with the Reagan era or the, the, the pre Reagan era, it's got to be funny, and it's got to be sexy, like just to keep your attention. I think there was enough humor and and boobs to keep you going through the message of the film, you know, to keep you wanting to watch more of the movie. Yeah, I think they did a good job, you know, showing a little bit of of Mary's skin, kind of titillating us with that. And then I seem to remember during the uh, the swingers party, there's one shot where it's just like full on female nudity, just like lifting up the top, taking over the head. I'm just like, that is such a throwaway shot, but whatever, it works for me. <laughs> oh, why would they do that shot? Oh, oh yeah. And, yeah. And, and remember that the guy who wrote it, co-wrote it, but directed it and is in it was gay. So right. there you go. Paul Bartel is gay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anything. I know he's not alive. <laughs> I always, in my head, I thought he was with Mary. In my head, that's what a lot of people thought. And when we, uh, you'll hear the interview with uh, Mary Warnoff later, and she talks a lot about that how they kind of treated Paul and Mary as a couple. They were like a a package deal when it came to a lot of the movies that they were in. But yeah, then people started ended up thinking that they were a couple, and it's like, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, it was a weird. So uh, Raul is selling these bodies to uh, a dog food company, and did you guys? They kind of allude to it. Did you know it was dog food, or did you think it was Mexican food? As they try to make you think. I figured it was was dog food through it, and I, I think especially with that commercial and everything. <laughs> they had a, read the talking dog. Well, that was after you found out just to gross you out. They did that weird talking dog commercial. Yeah, where it's like the people eating the dog food. It was like, what? <laughs> what makes doggies happy? It's a simple thing. Feed them night and morning at the doggy king. You know, we talk about how this movie kind of brushes stuff under the rug when it comes to, like, you know, just murdering um, swingers and all this kind of stuff. There's really no problem with the cannibalism at the end of this film either. <laughs> I don't know if Paul and Mary are enjoying uh, Raul or not, but um, yeah, the, definitely their guest is, and we're just okay. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> and how nice is it? They're always having the realtor over for dinner. That was really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> they got to impress him and make dinner somehow. But Right, whether they're having chicken or, or Mexican. Yeah. If I'm not wrong, Mary Warnoff did a uh, an ad for Alpo years oh, later. Oh, 
Really? I just remember seeing that in the late 80s and just like, whoa, is that that woman from Eating Raul? Why would they hire her for this? They'd have no connection to that. Oh, now I'm going to have to look that one up. That was really bizarre. Uh, you know, you think somebody would check that out? Yeah, yeah, you would think so. If she's associated with eating people for do- putting people on dog foods. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say sorry that we spoiled it, but the title of the film is Eating Raul. So, right. yes. Uh, for me, I wish it was uh, Paul Bartel is gay and that other guy is dead. That would have saved me a lot of embarrassment. <laughs> Sorry, uh, sorry. Unbelievable. Just didn't mean to embarrass you in front of a national audience <laughs> of people. It's not me, people. It's a character I'm playing. Oh, okay. <laughs> and scene. Now I'm back. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right, we are going to take a break and play a few interviews, one with writer-producer Richard Blackburn, one with actress Mary Warnoff, who played Mary Bland, and Susan Sager, who played Doris the Dominatrix. miles of bad road and now they have a microphone and their own show it's the daily grindhouse podcast the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com starring g you tell that bitch who sent you here how sorry i am i can no longer be her friend and the man called perry i'm the one that killed monday whooped who's and put wins in the hospital all the birds did a tell five did not the birds fair jones son Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation, cinema, and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forster, Brian Trenchard-Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <clears throat> well, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from The Projection Booth, and, you know, I want to tell you about a guy, kind of humble guy, I guess, my podcast partner. That's right, he has a new book out. His name's Mike White, and it's called Cinema Detours. The guy's so humble, he won't even bring it up on the show. I don't know what that's all about, but anyway, just want to say Cinema Detours got a chance to take a look at it, read through it, and it's kind of fun. I mean, you have these reviews for movies that you've probably seen before. And it's like chatting with an old friend. And then there's the movies that you haven't seen, which you got to add to your list and hopefully you get to see before you die. Thanks a lot, Mike, for telling me about all these movies that i got to see now. But really, ultimately, why I'm coming to you about why you should pick up Cinema Detours either at Amazon.com or for your Kindle, or you can go over to Projection-Booth.com and pick it up as well, is because, you see, Mike's wife told me to do this. You might not know this, but Mike has 37 children, and he needs the money in order to take care of them. 37 kids, can you imagine? So Cinema Detours, projection-booth.com. You can also get it at Amazon, either in paper form or for your Kindle. So check it out. It's Mike White, Cinema Detours. And uh, now I know why I don't get paid for this podcast. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. 
uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. Excuse me, what are you doing? Are you looking for porn again? No. Well, what is that I see? It's not porn. It's the badassboobsandbodycounts.com website. I happen to be looking at the reviews in the boobs section of the site. They have a section of the site dedicated to boobs? Yes, they do. They cover exploitation films in the boobs category, action films in the badass category, and horror in the body counts category. What's that other option, BBNBC podcast? If you're not into reading the reviews, you can listen to them via the web on your mobile device through iTunes, and they cover the same types of films, lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cinema. So yeah, to answer your question, I wasn't cruising porn. That's too bad. What's too bad? That you weren't cruising for porn. Uh, why? Because I was feeling kind of horny. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Get back here. Hey, get back here. How did you get into the business? I went to UCLA Film School. That wasn't exactly how I got into the business, but it sort of, I mean, that was, that was my interest. So I was there during the days of um, Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek were my classmates there. And um, it was a pretty, um, it was a fabulous, actually, a fabulous time uh, for, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, but I had a great, a great time being there. And... Um, so I uh, I made my student film, and my student film went to uh, Royce Hall, which was a big deal, because uh, only so many could get there, you know, and many of the student films were chosen. And then after that, uh, I knocked around, I did a lot of different things, and um, I lived in New York, and I I traveled in Europe, and I did film dubbing there, and I worked uh, on... Um, all sorts of jobs all over the place in New York and et cetera. I came back to Los Angeles and 
I'm trying to think how this happened. Oh, I came back to Los Angeles and I hooked up with a friend of mine and uh, who had also gone to a film school with me. And uh, I made a movie called Lamora. And that uh, was a, uh, a horror film. It's now it's on, um, uh, what is it, um, the Synapse. Synapse put it out with as well as it can ever be seen. And uh, DVD. And uh, it became, it was, when it came out, it was a total disaster. Uh, it was complete failure. And now it's got this cult status and all this, accolades and was shown at the Lincoln Center, et cetera, et cetera. So showing that sometimes if you just wait long enough, um, people will get around to what you did and like it. At any event, uh, so that, that didn't get me anywhere, really, because uh, it pretty well crushed me. Um, everybody had so high hopes for that movie. And um, since it was, like I say, just a, we went into... Um, all kinds of uh, financial difficulties, and the movie almost wasn't released, but it was released, and it did get out there. And then um, I chanced to, to meet, I had a, my girlfriend at the time, I was friends with somebody who had gone to UCLA before I had gone to UCLA, and that was Paul Bartel. And um, I met him, he was doing a, a script, uh, he was doing a film called Death Race 2000, and he had the script, and he gave it to us to read, just for us to read, and, um, and the story I always tell is I was reading the script, and I, somewhere in the middle of the script, I came upon a description of a shot that was close up of a bomb disguised as a baby, and I said, I can work with this guy, and uh, <laughs> so I, I let that be known, and I said, look, if you're you want to collaborate on something. The interesting thing is that we had both done our first movie the same year. He had done, um, oh, what was it called? Private, uh, shoot, and I can't remember the name. Of Private it. Parts? Private Parts, exactly, for Gene Corman. And I had done my little independent movie. And, and, and there's some odd uh, similarities between those movies. But um, he said, oh, yeah, let's, uh, let's collaborate on something. I have an idea. And so we... Came, he came to me with the idea. He wanted to do a movie called Frankencar. And it was about a, you know, it was a guy who was like injured, a race car driver injured, and he gets built into the actual body of a car, almost like a centaur myth or something, where he's under the hood, his, his torso or, and head. And it was so outlandish uh, that I was, I was pleased to try to do something like that because it was so wacky. And I think... He, uh, he was trying to get out of the, the Corman thing with the cars and stuff like that into something a little more quirky, which it definitely would have been. And the funny thing about that script is it has never really died out because it isn't, not a year goes by that somebody doesn't get in touch with me about it and wanting to do it, and it never happens. It's just one of those scripts. But even when it's rewritten, it never happens. At any event, that uh, didn't happen. And then there were a couple of other things that we tried and whatever. And then at one point, um, the eating rule came about, and that's a whole story unto itself. <laughs> I said, so what's that story? Well, that's a, I tell that a lot of times. I don't know, but I can tell it again. Um, I, uh, I had several scripts out. Uh, he had several scripts out, you know, because we wrote independently. I, well, he always wrote in collaboration, actually, Paul did, I think. 
I had a few things out, and um, and I also wrote in, in collaboration with this friend of mine, Bob Fern, um, that, that we we had also worked on the uh, the, the vampire movie, the, the Lamora movie, but nothing was happening, um, and I was and I I don't know I was living on on top of this uh, garage in Hollywood, and one day I got a call from from Paul Bartel. And he said that uh, that Roger Corman wanted to make a film uh, with him and Mary Warnoff. This was a total lie, but he told me that so I would be interested or try to get me interested in working on something uh, with him again. So he, I said, well, you know, because of course I was in all Roger Corman wants. That means there's money. That means we might get paid. That means a film might actually get made. So I said, well, what do you have in mind? And he said, well, I think we could be like detectives in Florida. I don't know where that came from, but that was in his head. And I said, I don't think anybody wants to see that Tony Rome jive. And he goes, well, what do you think? And I, out of the, it was just blue sky. I just said, I think you ought to be a sexless married couple, you know, that just, just kills people for their money. <laughs> he said, let's talk about that. <laughs> and so I said, all right. So he said, well, can you, can, let's go to Schwab's. At that time, Schwab's was still, still extant on the Sunset Strip. So we went down, and we met there. Uh, I guess we were both about five minutes away from it. And uh, drove down there individually and met and sat in the booth and hashed the thing out very quickly, actually, in basic form. And his, his idea was, well, if we're going to be a sexless married couple, then we need a lover for Mary and then he said, and I said, well, what do you think? He says, well, maybe a Latin lover. And I said, well, if he's a Latin lover, I know, I think he should be like a guy from the street, not some Jose de Villalonga character or something. And he goes, that's fine. And, and uh, I said, oh, wait, well, I, I know what he does, too. I know his name and I know what he does because on, um, on uh, Fairfax, there is a place called Raoul's Key Service. And um, I was, li- I've been, you know, when I was in my neighborhood, I knew it. So there was his name, Raul, and he was a phony locksman that would come in and pretend to put locks in and then later rob the... So, I mean, it all came together, brainstorming it very quickly. Then, when we got all that straightened out, and uh, I think... And then um, Paul wanted to have a dominatrix in it. I remember that. And then, again, I did my thing and said, well, if she's going to be a dominatrix, she has to be completely ordinary and uh, suburban and all that. So we go back and forth like that. With, uh, and they actually worked well. And I think um, just as a general overlook, you know, his, his, I had one time I said to him, well, you know, what we should do is we should go down to these like swinging singles apartments and, uh, you know, because they're going to murder these swingers and, and really like, you know, get into it and see what the story is with these people. And Bartos, I have no interest in that. <laughs> it was so funny. He didn't, he didn't care because his thing was more like Sweeney Todd, and my thing was kind of like the Honeymoon Killers. So in a weird way, those two sensibilities that we had, if it was left to me, I think it would have been, I would have come up with something so dark and depressing <laughs> it probably would have been made, and if it was all up to him, it might have been such a candy fluff that it wouldn't have been made in that way. But sort of together, we were we found some middle ground. 
at any event, um, we had gotten the uh, the story together, and we and Paul was uh, asked to be on the jury at the Berlin Film Festival, so he wangled, uh, saying, "Well, I my my co-writer has to come because we're working on the script." So they said, "Fine." I guess in those days you could do that. So you had money or something, so they. So they flew us both to Berlin, and I basically wrote the script uh, in the hotel while uh, Paul Bartel was seeing <laughs> Living High and <laughs> eating well and seeing movies, uh, and I was like whacking on the keys at that time, uh, just on a, you know that because there were no um, you know word processors then. We worked worked on a um, actual uh, typewriter back boy since a million years ago, but. So then, so the first draft was written there in Berlin, and uh, and after that we, um, you know, refined it and worked it and worked it, and then we tried, of course, to raise the money. Well, the first thing we did was so we thought, or Bartel believed that he would shoot some of the movie, and um, if if we had got that done, then maybe we could interest people in financing the rest of the movie. And he had enough, I guess, short ends or something like that to cobble together some scenes. And we shot the beginning of the film. I wasn't actually there. I was in London. I was working on some scripts over there uh, for a production company. And so he uh, put that together. He, he was working on that. He put that together. He didn't get anybody. The only thing... But Henry agreed to be in it. That was about the only thing that resulted from this 20 minutes of film. But here's also what happened. We shot that, or he shot that, within the uh, apartment of a friend of mine who had this very 50s uh, apartment uh, decorated that way. In fact, the art director hardly had to do anything. So as you see in the film, that is exactly the guy's apartment. And um, the, the apartment building... Uh, that my friend Art Fine was going to was going to be raised and was going to be destroyed. So the fire was really put up under our asses because we had we, we didn't want to go back and reshoot it. So uh, Paul scrabbled around and, and his, as luck would have it, his parents were moving from uh, New Jersey to Florida, and they sold the house. And with the proceeds, some of the proceeds from the house, they gave him the money to complete the film. And that's kind of a depressing thing because when we would show the film and young filmmakers would say, how did you get this on? You know, hoping that we'd say, well, we showed people this brilliant footage and they threw money at us. That just didn't happen. That's how it got on. It was a parental production. (laughs) I think that the casting of Paul and Mary was pretty much out of necessity since they knew that they weren't going to have that much money and just had to have these, you know, they had to be around for it. Exactly. Well, of course, the idea there was I, Paul had put had 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 seen Mary in New York in the theater of the ridiculous, the Charles Ludlam thing, and he brought her out. I guess back out to Hollywood. She had been there previously on tour with the Andy Warhol group, um, and and she because uh, she was really sort of a New Yorker anyway, and part of the factory scene. Well, he brought her out to be in Death Race 2000, so he had. Um, you know, he, he knew her fa- fairly well. And I, and also, I don't remember, see, Rock and Roll High School. That's right. He, they had done Rock and Roll High School, too, for Alan Arkish and uh, Joe, Dante, uh, Joe Dante and Alan Arkish. No, that's Hollywood Boulevard. 
who directed Rock and Roll High School? That was Alan? It was Arkish, but uh, I believe that Joe d- directed a couple scenes because Alan got sick. Okay. Um, anyhow, so uh, so he knew her well, and, and he wanted to uh, – he thought they worked well as a, a comic team. So that was – you know, it's not only economic necessity, it was also something that he had started from, even saying back to me that those years ago, um, uh, Roger Crumman wants to make a movie with Mary and myself. So he wanted to make a movie with himself and Mary. And, you know. <laughs> How close are Paul and Mary Bland to Paul and Mary in real life? Whoa! Well, they... Um, that's a no. They're not close. That's a total construct. In fact, you know, Mary Warnoff had up to that point basically, and she was called Mary Might in the in the Warhol days and all that. She had played, um, I don't know, and she continued after after our film to still play weird dyke wardenesses and and you know motorcycle queens and sort of tough roles. And I wanted to uh, after meeting her. And and seeing the um, the range that she that she exhibited just in just in speaking to you, and I wanted to emphasize a more childlike part of her that I that I thought would be funny that she could do. And now as for Paul, um, there's something of of um, Paul Bland in him in that um, he could be what could you say a little bit of a fuss budget about some things or a little bit, um, you know, repressed. Or what, I don't know. I don't exactly know how to say it. Um, he had almost a mid-Atlantic accent, um, and he, um, you know, he he had his little affectations or whatnot and was aware of them and, you know, could, could make comedic use of them. And uh, so in that case, yeah, I suppose you, there, there were certain things uh, more, I'd say more his character was closer to him than Mary's character was to her. He talked about this kind of mix of sensibilities, like you were going really dark, he was going kind of fluffy. Do you think there was kind of like a West Coast, East Coast kind of thing going on there? No, I think not at all, really, because Paul, I, I don't think it had anything to do with that. First of all, we're both, I mean, I was, I was born in D.C., and um, I came out to uh, to the West Coast, and I couldn't stand it. First, I went to college at SC my freshman year, and I couldn't stand the place. And I left, and I went to University of Michigan, and um, I lived in New York. Uh, but there was a thing about Southern California that obviously I did like because I kept coming back to it, and finally made my home here. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't think it was anything to do geographically. I think it was just more to do with our individual tastes um, um, and our, our, our outlooks on things and that we uh, could work well because even though, well, you know, we obviously had all kinds of arguments about uh, things. I mean, Paul, for one thing, um, operated a great deal as a producer in that he like he would have the and and I think a lot of people that uh, initially when working for Corman uh, and Corman doing this too, they'd have it would be the concept. They grab this concept and then the concept would sort of take care of everything. And Paul would be fond of saying, I think at this point 
the audience would like. And he'd mention something, you know, fairly outlandish. And then I'd have to, if I'd either argue that it was too bizarre and it wouldn't work and it wouldn't, it wouldn't suspend, people wouldn't be able to suspend disbelief. That's what I was, you know, worried about a lot of times. And, and, uh, I would, it would be to me to try to work it out so they would be able to suspend disbelief. So, um, that's, because I think in a, in a writing partnership, you usually have somebody, I must always, <clears throat> who is more objective and somebody who is more subjective. And with Paul, it was more objective. He'd just get an idea, you know, and he'd fall in love with a concept or an image like that. And then it was how to work it, you know. But I must say also, in, in, in praise of him, because once we did that movie, we had to cut stuff, and he was very good about that, because if it wasn't working, or he thought it was slowing the movie down, he, would, he was pretty ruthless, and he'd cut it. I don't know if this is just kind of happenstance, or, or if it was really planned out. I mean, the movie comes out in 82, but it seems so steeped in like this kind of Reagan-era sensibility. Is that just lucky, or was that the plan? It wasn't, I don't think it was that, um, you know, uh, thought out, but we were talking about the me decade, you know, and that was the big time of the me decade. And it was like, um, and it was very, oh, what would you say? It was this, by 82, you know, actually I sort of figure, and I, this is a thing that I do is, is thinking of not when actual decades end uh, chronologically, but maybe they end more <clears throat> by some sort of national um, occurrence or something. Like I would, I would date actually the 50s actually ending with Kennedy's death because I believe after Kennedy's death, the 60s actually began. And I could say that the 70s, in a way, um, ended with John Belushi's death. And that was like... You know, that was like wretched excess, and it ushered in a sort of minimalism with the 80s, and we were right on the uh, cusp of that. Right, right. So that, um, but I don't know if it was it was thought out. It was just something that would be, I just thought was, you know, I mean, we just thought we were trying to make a funny, funny movie. But of course, you get all, I mean, I remember when I did, um, uh, in the in the uh, seventy what's it seventy three or something I made I made um, the vampire movie Lamora and later people were asking me if these creatures in the woods that had this thing that's a sort of disease was somehow linked up to AIDS so it's always interpreted you know anything whatever anybody does good or bad by the current audience will interpret it in the zeitgeist that they're in. Right. Yeah. You know? And I don't think that, you know, we, we may have been, I, and, and, and when you make, uh, or do any type of, create anything, you're, you have to be influenced by that, um, unconsciously, sometimes consciously. Um, and, uh, and that's the only thing I can remember. I can remember just talking about the, you know, the, the me decade and the hedonism and that type of thing that we were making fun of. I was curious because you've got 
you know, the the timing seemed to be right. And then with that fabulous 50s furniture that you mentioned, it just all kind of harkens back. And then their, like, sexist marriage, it kind of goes back to that whole, like, conservatism of the 50s that was coming back, you know, swinging back to the right in the, the 80s. Yes, I know. It's, it's kind of weird. I mean, since we were, like, goofing on it, um, and, of course, at that, and also then, well, I mean, now all that stuff is mid-century and and you pay a good price for it in those days it was pretty cheap right clothing and furniture from the 50s it wasn't a it, it was seen um except by some you know really sort of avant-garde hipsters as just stuff from another time that wasn't that desirable right it was kitsch it wasn't vintage right, right exactly exactly <laughs> so now it's now it changes. And uh, You said you were away for the beginning of the shooting with that stuff. When did you kind of come back and get back involved with that? Well, I, he just said, Paul said, um, I wasn't, wait, wait, wait a minute, let me think. Maybe I wasn't. Um, I think we had shot the 20 minutes. That's right. I know I, I was there. We shot the 20 minutes, but then he assembled it. And then, then I left. He was assembling it, and he was trying to sell it. And he gave me a call in London, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I finished this thing. He said, well, that's great, because come back. We've got the money. We're going to make the movie. So I, I flew back, and um, we commenced to shoot the whole film. And as I said, a lot of it, because it was, we were, you know, everybody was wearing different hats in the film uh, to try to make this movie, um, you know, I mean, I was in the movie uh, we, because that way we didn't have to hire some other actor, you know? <laughs> so that's how, that's how all that st- stuff worked out. And he had, like, short ends from other productions that, that friends and filmmakers had given him. Some of this stuff, in, like in Crosses with Jungle Rot or something like that, we had no idea that when we shot it, if the, if the thing, you know, would disintegrate or whatever. So we were very lucky. Um, and... It wasn't a trouble-free production because of money. And many times we were shooting over, you know, way into golden hours and the cast. And, I mean, basically the crew was, like, disgruntled. And uh, all credit to Paul Bartel, he was like Napoleon at Elba or something. And go in there and give him a pep talk and, you know, I can't. He's like in all, I remember him saying something like, in all truthfulness, I really have no right to ask you to, stay on but I do ask you because you know and they did and we and we made the movie and um, anyway and then once the movie was made um, the um, we had to uh, sell it and uh, again Paul was very canny about that because we went to uh, Cannes Film Festival and we booked and this, I think, I believe this is his idea, maybe since in um, conjunction with Ann Kimmel was producing, but and basically Paul's idea, because we had been to Cannes before um, uh, to, to the film festival trying to you know, get backing and stuff for various projects. So what he did was uh, rent the smallest theater for the movie. So when the movie was shown and people had to be turned away, then the word went out on the quasette, whatever. And the next time it was the second biggest theater. And then they had to be turned away. And it went on and on until it got to the third screening and it was packed. 
in the big theater, and then we got invited to the uh, New York Film Festival. And then what happened after that? Who picked it up? And then it was bought by Fox Classics, and that was their, at that time, their little sort of art, arty indie arm of 20th Century Fox. <clears throat> and they bought the film. And when we made, when we made the deal, the, inter- the interesting thing is it never did a lot of money theatrically, but it was just when videos were starting to, to pop and uh, people had not realized the full potential of that market and we did better with, um, with um, video rentals than theatrical and sales, video sales and rentals. So I was going to ask how the reception was for the film, but I guess maybe I should ask how it was for the video. Well, the reception uh, was fine. It was great. I mean, we, we got a lot of wonderful press, and um, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a success. It was a minor success. I mean, it wasn't, but it was, you know, well, I guess like a, a hip midnight cult movie success, and um and for what you know, what it cost. I mean, it did it, it 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 didn't lose money at all. And then with those sales and everything, it did it did very well. And now that Criterion has it, um, recently I think it was last year we just I went in there and did um with the uh, uh, with the art director Bob Schillenberg and uh, Alan Tamayan, the editor. We we sat down the three of us and did a uh, you know commentary track for the film. And so that's, um, and that's good. I haven't even, actually, I haven't even seen it. Um, after I did it, I haven't looked at it, but I hear that it's, that the picture quality is terrific. And cause when it came out initially, um, uh, in, uh, in video, uh, on tape, it was, it wasn't looking very good. And they, and they're really, and then even when it came out in, in the, the DVD, uh, the first DVD, there were no extras or anything, and it still looked pretty muddy, the, the, the uh, picture quality. Yeah, the Criterion looks beautiful. Yeah, I, I understand it does. So they, they, do, they do a hell of a job. I mean, they, they actually approached me uh, for, to do the Lamora, the, the vampire movie, when that got shown at, um, at the Lincoln Film Festival. And uh, I went to Synapse just because it was a smaller concern, and they specialized in that type of thing. And I also thought that, I mean, Criterion's f- fabulous job and everything, but they, they're rather expensive. I didn't think a lot of people would pay that money, I don't know, <laughs> for, a, um, for the movie. Right, yeah. But they do take very good care when it comes to the original elements and everything. So Right, but I must say, too, I- that Synapse, we were two and a half days doing color corrections so it's never going to look it look better than the release print yeah yeah don is kind of a nut when it comes to that stuff yes he did me well with that he definitely did <laughs> so what have you been up to recently um i have uh been working for years on this novel that um nearly finished the um, second rewrite of i've got finished the first part the second the second rewrite of the first part, and I have to finish the second rewrite of the second part, and then I'll be done with that. And I've been uh, since that time. I've been you know trying to get these things on and got uh, the, kept writing scripts 
uh, on various things, one thing and another, and uh, basically that were, and most things that I write are kind of a period. I mean, I'm real interested in, say, like the whole Red Scare in the 50s, and that's fascinating to me. And uh, I wrote this script recently about the 60s and uh, UCLA and the college students and the whole environment that I went through there um, and comedy about that. And then, uh, like I say, but then working on this novel and also helping people out with uh, uh, music projects um, in terms of uh, doing liner notes or I'm a record collector and I I loan out um, rare records so they can do scans of labels or um, if they can't find the uh, uh, the record itself to put on a say a CD, they can use the original like that. Um, and that's basically basically what I've been doing. Yeah. Oh, your novel is that fiction, nonfiction? It, the novel is uh, fiction. Well, it's it's like a, it's a false autobiography, actually. Oh, okay, cool. It's a false autobiography of a known figure. That makes very sense. nice. Full autobiography. Yeah. So, yeah, that's always tough. When I talk to writers, you know, it's it's that's always the most difficult thing is because when I look at like you know the IMDb or whatever, it's like these huge gaps of time, and I know that people have been working the entire time. It's not like you're taking off ten years, but it's that whole like, did you get credit on the project? Did it get sold? Did it get picked up and then never got made? And yeah, a lot of people have been in this town for years and never had a movie ever made. And they just, you know, they either script doctor or they think it's going to turn around or whatnot, and they just go on and on, and they, um, you know, nothing gets made. There's, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, a, I mean, there's an awful lot of disappointment, uh, as we know, uh, in film. And, uh, and also, the, the younger you are, and the more passionate you are, I think the better off you are. Because when you, when, after a certain amount of time, you get just kind of tired <laughs> of doing that and, and raising up your hopes and having them dashed and like that. And, and so uh, I know there are stories of people that were been in the business, and they did turn to, to novel writing because at least, or, or, or book writing because at least it's just all them, and they're not dependent on anybody. The badness or the goodness uh, of the the project is their responsibility. They can't blame anybody. I mean, except maybe for a publisher that they say, well, the guy didn't have any vision and he wouldn't publish my work. But actually, but their work is their work. And of course, when you write a script, it's really, uh, you know, it's a blueprint uh, for another uh, thing, <laughs> for a movie. It's not a finished thing. And, and I mean, even in, in Making Raul, we did... Um, a good deal of, of improvisation. I mean, I remember Ed Begley come up to me and said, do you mind if I do this? And I said, what do you want to put in? And he said, I would like to say that. I said, well, that's a lot better than what I wrote. Yeah, I'll take credit for that. Put it in. <laughs> so, um, they was, it, 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 and those, on, on that level, it was a lot of fun to make that movie um, because it was a comedy and because um, we did have some wonderful, you know, people uh, in the cast um, and that would uh, 
you know, just come up with, with different takes on stuff or ideas. And so it was collaborative like that. As a matter of fact, uh, one interesting thing is that the fellow who plays the porn shop uh, uh, proprietor or counterman there, that was actually, we had gone to Pee Wee Herman, uh, Paul Rubens, to try to get him to do it. And he suggested this guy because the guy was a, a groundling that he knew. Yeah? And he was just about ready to ascend into fame at that point, and he was, um, he didn't want to, I guess, tie himself to a smaller project because he was about to leap into a bigger one. Yeah, I mean, he probably didn't want to be associated with anything dirty either. <laughs> well, in, in hindsight, that might be true. I don't, I don't know. It could be. It, it could be. Because I, I know that when we did, well, one funny thing was, uh, Paul had this good idea. He said, why don't we do a comic Make, make a comic book of this uh, at the same time. So he says, you, you know um, Robert Crumb, don't you? And I said, well, I know people that know him, and I can get in touch with him. And he said, well, why don't you see if Robert Crumb would be interested in you know, doing a comic of this in the script? And I think Robert Crumb was kind of like John Waters. He wanted to do his own thing, but he, he was very funny. I mean, he wrote me a nice response saying, they call me sick? Look at this thing, you know, like that. It was pretty cute. And then he asked me if I could find him a rare record he was looking for. <laughs> but then we got um, Kim Deitch, and he was fab, you know, real good. And um, and Carol Lay came in to uh, help out because we we cranked it out pretty pretty quick time that comic book. And um, so that was that was a that was a cool little bit of of um, publicity for the for the movie. Uh, doing that, I enjoyed working on. It. I worked on on that with Kim and, and uh, not so much with Carol because he worked with her, but uh, we'd have meetings about it. Did you work on the uh, musical and all? I had nothing to do with the musical. That's, that was an interesting thing because Paul came to me and said, you know, he, was, he wanted to do musical with this thing. And I said, I do, I do musical with it. And uh, he went out and he got the book and he got the songs and whatnot. And then we had a terrible time because when the musical came out, uh, I had I received no credit. It not wasn't it was it was from a film by Paul Bartel, but I didn't mention my name at all. So my agent said, "You can't you can't let this go. You have to you know." So I had to get a lawyer, and the whole thing got real ugly. And um, and finally, um, <laughs> it finally the money that I got in reparation for them not putting my name on this thing was just about, it covered the lawyer's fee. It was a wash. And it was a lot of source and craziness. And, you know, in the end, we were able, and it's sort of like, obviously, um, rent uh, the fabric of, of, of Paul Bartell and my relationship for a while. But then we, you know, we got back together on the, um, on the uh, sequel. Right? And, uh, and, and actually, when we went, I think when we went and did that rewrite, that was after we had sort of, you know, made amends to each other about the whole situation, and we're able to like, and which is which I'm glad that we were able to, you know, um, repair our friendship before his death. Well, that's good. I'm glad there was a no hard feelings about no, that. We were able to do that, but it was it was it was nasty there at the. It was because, you know, I mean, um, it's so funny. I mean, you get these lawyers, and immediately they'll demonize 
the other person, you know, where are this Paul Bartels, the biggest son of a bitch? I said, believe me, he's, he's not even close to being the worst son of a bitch in this town. He's not, he's not even, <laughs> he, he really isn't. He's just got, he's just got a big ego. He just got out of hand. That's all it is. He's not a demon. He's not a bad guy. <laughs> I never thought of that. I never thought he was. And, um, I mean, hopefully he didn't think badly of me either. It was just something that happened. I remember one time when I was uh, working on this uh, screenplay uh, over in London, and this is this is more of a, a, a British thing than a Hollywood thing. I, I was flying over to France, and I, the producer was there on the plane with me. We just happened to bump into each other. And he said, you know, he says, Big uh, is nailed to work again. And I said, well, don't you remember you? I had to, I had to get a lawyer for you guys to pay me on, on the last bit of work that I did for you. And he goes, oh, yes. He goes, well, what happened with that? And I said, well, I won, and you paid me. He goes, oh, well, fine then. So let's go on. <laughs> and I don't think that would that would happen so much here. <laughs> uh I liked working in England because of that attitude. Not that everybody would have it, but it was pretty good, all that old fair play stuff. Right. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, can you keep me updated on your novel? I'd love to, to read it when it's available and, and let folks know to go out and buy it. Oh, yeah. Well, let's say, let's hope that it, it, can, it can you know get published. I mean, I have no idea. I have no publisher for it. I just, uh, I've just been working on it, and... Uh, you know, I've written a, a few that haven't been published, so well, I'm tr- trying this this sort of um, epic kind of because it goes throughout the entire 20th century. So, in any event, a lot of research in it. To just, if I knew what it had involved, what it would involve, I wouldn't have embarked on it. I don't think. <laughs> oh yeah, like, I know how that goes. A lot of people are like that. You know, they never know. You never know what it, it whatever is going to really, you know. Once you get started in it, and then then you're too far, you know, out in the ocean to to go back to shore, and you got to keep paddling. Mrs. Bland, every weekend I give a party for some of my more sexually liberated friends. Many of them are bank customers like yourself. Uh, could you come next weekend? You can bring your husband if you want to. Oh, that's nice, but um, it's getting late, and I do have to get back to the hospital, so if you would just... How did you get involved with acting? (laughs) Um, I uh, went to Cornell for art, and uh, Gerard Malenga, who worked for Warhol at the time, came up to read poetry, and he, I didn't know it, but he he knew that Warhol was doing movies, and he wanted to be in them, and he intuitively knew that he needed a co-star and he saw me in a play and decided I was it. So he did his best to lure me back, which he, I, I went back with him. And, um, then, uh, no, actually I didn't go back with him. This is a long story. You sure you want to hear it? Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. So anyway, he kept on coming up to Cornell, and I would uh, sort of go back with him. And then Cornell decided to give an art trip, uh, and we went to Rauschenberg Studio, which was white and a normal studio. And uh, then we went to Warhol Studio, which was painted black with silver wallpaper and uh, a bunch of freaks hanging around. And uh, Warhol wasn't even there. Um 
And Gerard was there, and he said, why don't you stay? They're going to make a screen test as soon as these goofballs leave, meaning my class. And I said, okay. And um, then uh, I watched my class march out, and uh, I stayed and did the uh, screen test, which was kind of hairy because they put me on a stool and uh, put the camera on, and then they went to the other side of the studio. And I thought, oh, my God, there's no film in the camera. They're making a joke out of me. And I thought I would get up and leave. But then I thought, well, if they're not making a joke of me, this is the first time I've ever been on a camera, so maybe I should stay and leave afterwards, which is what I did. Now, you kind of were separated from your class physically. Did you always feel kind of uh, apart from them otherwise? No. No? I mean, like, it had to be an interesting thing to be kind of singled out to stick around and make the but screen I'd test. Known him. I thought, you know, at first I thought he was coming on to me, which he was. He just comes on to everybody. But um, I don't know. I knew him and I knew I wanted to be around these people. And the reason why I wanted to be around these people is I had ma- read Mary Renault books. I'd read Genet. I'd read, I mean, I uh, was very pro-gay at the time. I wasn't gay, but um it seemed to me that it was a safe place for me because I was tired of being hit on, and and so I acclimated very well to this area. What was it like being part of the uh, exploding plastic inevitable? That was fantastic because I got to dance in front of a crowd. Um, I uh, and I, you know, dance is a weird word for it. I had a bullwhip and I did whatever I liked, which wasn't really, you know, the fruit. And uh, Gerard danced with me, and um, I love their music. And I love being sort of the lead dancer for these maniac people who didn't know why they were there, but still were in love with it. And they would stay at the Dom all night. And also, it was part of a scene, because Warhol put his his movies on the wall, and there was a light show. I mean, I know there were lots of them in San Francisco, but this is the first I ever saw in New York. And it just had this great atmosphere of, you know, late at night, and it was something nobody else was doing. I was crazy about it. What can you tell me about the making of Chelsea Girls? Chelsea Girls. Well, this wasn't the first time I acted. It was the first time I acted maybe in front of a movie camera. But I'd done plays before, uh, especially in my school, uh, and even at Cornell. So I, when they said, you know, Mary, do you want to be in this movie? I approached it as an actress. Now, I'm not too sure that the other girls, especially the girls in that room with me at the time, approached anything as an actress. They approached it as, as, a, as a, a, a way to stardom, to be a star to be, uh, you know, somebody that was uh, having photographs taken of them and that was always in, uh, you know, in the top line of uh, uh, socialism. I, that doesn't sound right. Uh, society there. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, I was an actress. I saw this as, uh, you know, uh, a, a regular scene. Plus, uh, Ronnie Tavell at the time, who was doing uh, Warhol scripts, um, he wrote a script. So, of course, it was acting. And I learned my script, and I knew what it was supposed to be, and I knew uh, the way it should be blocked out and everything. And nobody uh, gave us any direction whatsoever. Nobody said anything. But I had this strong idea about what should happen. And I saw my part as sadistic, uh, which I loved because I loved being strong. I was always taller than everybody and so on and so forth. Now, nobody else learned their lines, so... Uh, 
this made me even more furious and sadistic. And um, Chelsea's Girls was born. When I was with Warhol, I was also doing uh, theater that was in New York at the time, and it was called the Theater of the Ridiculous. It was extremely gay. They, uh, it, uh, it was profane. It uh, there was fucking on stage. There was nudity on stage. It was always shut down. Um, and this was a whole other area that has been I, most people don't even know about it anymore. But I was very accustomed to this. How did you kind of make that transition from the Warhol stuff? you know, into other other realms, I guess. You know, with sugar cookies kind of a... It seems like such a departure from what you were doing before. It was. Um, the transition is pretty simple. Uh, this guy hounded me and said uh, not only was he in love with me, but he wanted to do a movie in Italy, a real movie. And I couldn't believe it. So uh, I said no, and then I said yes. And the movie is called Chemic. And uh, it was in... And, you know, if you do a movie in Italy, you really do feel like a star. I mean, they treat you so fabulously and tell you you're so beautiful all the time. And um, so uh, the other thing they told me is that my director was really depressed and uh, that I should be nice to him or nicer to him. My director was solidly in love with me. And I thought, well, you know, after Italy, I thought I, I really don't want to go home and uh, perhaps I should stay with him. And so I married him. Now, he wrote three movies. He wrote Silent Night, Bloody Night, and um, Kamek, which I'd already done, and Sugar Cookies. Now, Silent Night, Bloody Night was a regular movie. Uh, I understood it. It was kind of boring for me. My director all of a sudden had lots of time because he was married to me to tell me what to do, which I hated. And finally, he decided, you know, I couldn't cry, and that was a big deal. And so what? I used glycerin. But then his next movie was this porn movie, or I considered it porn at the time. I mean, maybe it wasn't. It was called Sugar Cookies, and he wrote it. And I couldn't believe it. Not only did he write it, but he cast me as a lesbian. I mean, you know, I'm in bed with this guy every night. I'm a lesbian. I, the whole thing was so screwy and weird. Uh, and I actually hated Sugar Cookies. And I didn't think much of it after it was made. I didn't think it was a very good movie. And I didn't like doing it. It seems to have such an interesting cast to it, and then just all the similarities between it and Vertigo. He was very in love with Vertigo. He wasn't a stupid man. He was from Harvard, and uh, he really wanted to be Hitchcock. But he didn't. He never got his break. He just never got it. He got it with Kemick, but you know the person who financed Kemick died, and the movie was given to his butler for some reason. Oh, jeez. Right. So. What happened after that? I mean, you kind of went from there on to seizure, but... No, no, I didn't. I went, uh, I decided to make money, and uh, I uh, I got an agent, and he sent me up uh, for the play The Boom Boom Room by David Rabe. And I got the Theater World Award, and he said, this is fabulous. What you do now is you make a lot of money in a soap called Somerset. And then in the wintertime, you do a play. Well, I did Somerset. I really hated that. I couldn't handle it. I just said, this isn't happening. I got very depressed. And uh, Ted's best friend was uh, Paul Bartell because they'd been in the army together and they had made movies. Ted made one movie and and Paul Bartell made a movie called Secret Cinema, which is wonderful. Um, And Paul liked me. And he uh, went to... um, he worked to work for Roger Corman's brother, 
and I forget the movie, but it was kind of a good movie. And then Roger said that he uh, wanted him to do Death Race 2000. And Paul called me up and he said, if you come down here, and I'm sure when Roger sees, you know, your legs, you'll get the part. And uh, Roger never looked at my legs. Um, but Roger gave me the part anyway. And that was the beginning of my career in L.A. I never went back to New York. Oh, that's awesome. So you guys just kind of knew each other socially through your husband first? Yes, yes. But he also he also knew me in the theater of the ridiculous. He knew me in Warhol. Paul did. I mean, so he knew what I could do. Although he never really asked me to do anything like that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, both of us were out there for our first time practically, and he had a great sense of humor. Also, he had he he was very theater of the ridiculous himself. He was a great ad libber. I mean, fabulous, and he let me do what I wanted. He never, never asked me to, you know, I just have to do this, or I should cry here, or I should do this. I could just do what I wanted, and I got along very, very well with him. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the Death Race 2000, despite the ridiculous title, which I still love, it's, there's so much great satire in that film. But that Paul, Paul, is, he's wonderful that way. And he had tremendous arguments with... Uh, with Roger Corman, because Roger kept on saying, no, no, it's a horror movie, more blood, more blood. And Paul said, no, 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 it won't be funny if we have blood. You can't kill these people. I mean, you have to you have to be bloodless about the whole thing. Yeah, I love that moment, just the one towards the end when you kind of reach out to both Frankenstein and Machine Gun Joe, and just that, like, that nice, tender moment where it's like, you know, it's been a pleasure r- racing with you. <laughs> right. It's so nice. It's just, it's very unexpected that that would be in there. <laughs> I know. I don't know. I just felt like it. <laughs> so how was your working relationship with, with Paul Bertel? My working relationship with him was fine. He never had enough money, uh, so he was constantly busy doing something else, and I did what I wanted. And he trusted me. Like, I insisted on the pajamas, and then Paul put a wine bottle in his bed and eating Raoul, and then I said, no, 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 I get something too, and they all looked around the house, and then they gave me all these stuffed animals, and that's how the sexuality between us grew, was sort of this weird thing where we never had sex, and we, you know, just talked about how awful other people had sex were, which was in the, in in the, it wasn't really, you know, that heavy in the movie, but when we got finished with it, it was hysterical. And it was this takeoff on, you know, the, the um, oh, oh, what do you call people who don't have sex, who hate sex? Um, Republicans? <laughs> well, sort of, yes. You could call them Republicans. But, you know, the ones that came over on the Mayflower, those prim Oh, Puritans. Puritans, yeah. yes. This hysterical Puritanism and this fiendish sexuality underneath where, you know, murder is fine, but, you know, fornication, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you and Paul, you worked together so well. It kind of almost like this husband and wife team almost, you know, even though you weren't a couple. Why why do you think that you well, work so all, well together? Paul loved the idea that we were a couple. He used to do interviews saying we were married and I told him, Don't ever do that again, you know, it doesn't look good, you're gay, are you covering it up? That's stupid. And he said, oh, but we have one more interview to do. And I said, well, I'm not doing it with you. And he says, no, no, I won't say anything about us being married. Um, no, he said, I won't say that we're married. So the interview comes on and the woman goes, and you're married, aren't you? And I start to say no. Before I can say anything, Paul says, we're divorced. <laughs> yeah, are you ready for him? 
so you know that we i don't know we did get along yes very very well except for the fact that after eating raul he did two more movies and didn't have me in them oh why was that you know i don't know i never asked him i didn't want to offend him but i think it's because he wanted to work with real actresses not you know silly things like me well I don't know. I, I, you give such a tremendous performance in Eating Raul, and I just I love the way that your your character really is the dynamic one. You change through the film, just the way that you kind of go from him to Raul and then back to to Paul at the end. You know, these girls, uh, um, Minx Films, are doing a documentary on me, and they uh, interviewed Alan Arkish and Joe Dante about Eating Raul. And Joe Dante and Alan Arkus used to be um, the uh, editors for everything, you know, with Roger Corman until they finally got their break with Hollywood Boulevard, which is a great movie. Um, so uh, they said that uh, they were helping Paul edit, and the telephone scene where I finally make my sexual phone call, he, you could see that Paul came in and he would re-edit everything they did so that he was more in the front. So I'm not so sure that he did like my work. Hmm. Um, and I didn't even know this was going on. It's just not until uh, they were interviewed did I hear about it. Oh, wow. Yeah, what was it like making Hollywood Boulevard? It's such a great and unusual film. I loved it. Why yeah. they didn't make more of those films, I don't know. First of all, these two kids, you know, in sneakers with little high voices... I mean, you knew immediately that they had no interest in sports whatsoever. They decide uh, to work for Corman for nothing down in the depths of the cellar. And then they finally tell Corman, well, we can make a movie. They knew this is the only thing that would excite him. We can make a movie, you know, inside a week. And the way they made it was, of course, to use outtakes of all these other movies. Like when I shoot a gun, all these people in the Philippines drop out of palm trees. Um, (laughs) That wasn't in the... (laughs) That was in someone else's movie, but they put it in. So it was really, they they managed to do exactly that. And they had this brilliant idea of doing a movie about making a Corman movie. And it was just so sweet and so funny. I loved it. I really did. Yeah. Miracle pictures, right? Yeah. Also, Paul and I did all of our scenes where I'd lived. Oh, wow. Yes, the scene where I'm sitting and telling him about what a fabulous, you know, thing acting is and how he should change everything. He was the director, of course, or played the director. But we used to get movies where people would just want us to do our thing. Now, when you first um, read the script for Eating Raul, what was your first impression? Uh, Eating Raul? I thought they were trying to get me to do another sex movie like Sugar Cookies, and I told them no. Oh, <laughs> Hence the pajamas, hence the single beds, hence the kissing on the cheek, boing, and that was it. So it was much more uh, risque the first first time around? Let's put it this way. They could have shot it very risque. Uh, you know, he went to uh, Germany and locked Blackburn, who's the writer, in a room. And uh, I'm sure Blackburn came up with something that was even more of a skate. Paul, though, is someone who did not like having overt sexuality. You can make fun of it, yes, but, you know, you didn't want to have this overt sexuality. But, of course, in Eating Raul, he got it. But when he started to cast that movie, he didn't want uh, Robert Beltran to play Raul. He wanted his friend who could do a Mexican accent but was not Mexican, God only knows what he thought a Mexican accent was, to do it because the guy was a comedian, a funny guy. 
And then he interviewed Robert Belcham, and Blackburn and I went crazy and said that we would not do the movie unless he used this man. He was great. He was so sexy. And, of course, Robert was fabulous. Oh, yeah, that performance is amazing. He's really funny, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I know, he's so cute. I'm trying to remember, were you guys in any scenes together in Night of the Comet? Sure. Okay. It's, sorry, it's been a little while. I love the movie, but it's been a while. Night of the Comet went, this is another guy who let me uh, write my own dialogue. He was being picked on by the cinematographer, and he was having a terrible time. And I said to him, you know, this scene where this Christmas, in Christmas, uh, uh, you've got to let me... And he said, oh, do what you want. Just go do what you want, you know. So I wrote this scene where at Christmas I was shooting up and Robert Beltram comes in and, playing Santa Claus. It was hysterical. <laughs> I love Sorry, I keep going from eating our rule to other things and then back again. I, I apologize for that. But oh, okay. uh, it's my understanding that... Uh, Eating Raul was kind of shot like piecemeal over time. Huh, Is that piecemeal. right? It took us more than a year to shoot it. It was only, you know, two weeks long. I mean, two weeks, I don't know, 21 days of shooting, something like that. But um, no, he ran out of money, he kept on running out of money. First, he didn't have any money for film, and Landis gave him film that had, the cans had rusted, so nobody would use it. And every time he shot, he thought that, you know, it would be completely blank, but it never was. Uh, another time he, he lined everybody up. Oh, this was really funny. He lines everybody up, you know, and I'm grumpy to begin with. So he lines us all up and he says, I have no more money. Now I'm drawing a line in the sand. Those who want to come with me step over the line, but you others will have to leave now. And I'm going, what? <laughs> and everybody, of course, <laughs> stepped over the line and we finished the film. <laughs> it was really funny. I was always curious about his voice, because didn't he grow up, like, in Brooklyn or something? Yeah, but you don't see it, do you? No, I <laughs> certainly don't. <laughs> no. I thought maybe expected, but right. he's, you know, he's not a Brooklyn kid. No, he always sounded like, you know, very hoity-toity Boston. Or... Yes, 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 yes. Because he thinks it's funny. He's always sending himself up, too. Uh, I I love to, I mean, whenever he shows up in something, you know, it's just like, oh, hey. Right. And then usually you show up, too, which is, like, even better. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's like, I was looking the other day. You guys made, like, what, I want to say 18 movies together? Because people kept on putting us together in movies. Um, it, there was one movie where we did scene after scene, and they didn't use the movie. Uh, the guy who did the car movie is the one who, what was his name? Demi? Demi someone? No? I don't know. But anyway, we were an actress and a uh, uh, a director, and we were going somewhere in a train. It was all about a train. And we had these insane scenes. It was such a great movie. I mean, maybe it wasn't a great movie because it never came out, but we had these incredible scenes. I wish I had them. Now, you've done a fair bit of writing, too. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the books that you've done? You're so sweet to ask. Um, (laughs) First of all, uh, I decided uh, that I didn't want to act anymore. And uh, I also, uh, well, anyway, I I decided I wanted to write, so I would write something that everybody was interested in, and everybody was interested in Warhol. So I'd write about my time with Warhol. The book turned out to be really good. It's basically imaginary reality. It's, um, I mean, it's not the truth, 
but in order to get the truth across, I lie a little. And so I've made up this story, which is, I mean, it's totally believable because half of it is true all the time. And the book uh, was successful, except for Time magazine, of course, which said that it wasn't about Warhol, and so uh, it wasn't any good. Oh, jeez. So that was the first one. But I was so happy with the success that I did have that I I did Snake, which is about Los Angeles. That's my best book by far. It's really good. And then I did Niagara. And then, of course, I had all these things lying around that didn't get in the book. And so I did short stories out of them uh, called Blind Love. And uh, I'm just now, my brother's putting them all out on, um, what do you call those things? Kindles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's putting them out with that, with the essays that I've done for Artillery Magazine on Warhol. Oh, that's great. It's going to be a really good book. And the it's called Swimming Underground. Okay. Yeah, it seems like you kind of have to have that electronic presence these days. I know. I know, but I like it. Um, also, I did get the, I got Art Forum said it was fabulous. There are people who just love that book, and they said it was like really, really, you know, cutting edge or whatever, you know. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't really a big hit, and that depressed me. Although it's published in Russian and French and uh, Italian, and uh, all of that happened. Well, that's definitely saying something. Yeah, but New York didn't like it. Well, New York, whatever. It'll still come around. Oh, be nice. Because it all happened in New York. It's all about New York, you know. And then to have your, you know, your home turf not like something. And it's because of that review in Time magazine, because she said those things. It was just completely ignored. Anyway, I don't want to make you cry here, so let's go on. No, it's... <laughs> Tell me about the documentary that they're making about you. You mentioned that a little bit. Ah, Minx Films. Minx Films, uh, these two girls are making a... They decided they wanted to do a documentary about me. I said, fine. But, you know, once again, I didn't want to do it the regular way. So what I do is, uh, like in the first little bits, I uh, they don't ask me questions, and I answer them. I just go off. I just, I you know, this is my mother's dress. This is what she liked. This is what I did when I was a kid. I, I just go off. And then there's a section on Warhol, and I go off there. And pretty soon that was the form of the documentary, and it's pretty novel. And so... Uh, they're finishing it up as we speak. Do you know uh, a release date or anything? Or No, 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 no. They just finished. I forget what they got. They got some kind of award so that they w- the film was entered in some kind of... Oh, I don't know. It's not really an award. It's something where, you know, everybody looks at everybody else's film and they pick the best. And theirs was picked. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it is great. But, you know, they still haven't finished it. Mm-hmm. So how about... It, it, it sounds like you're you're damn busy, but what is uh, what else have you been working on lately? Oh, well, I don't act anymore. No? No, that's over. Um, but I've always painted, and I'm sort of, you know, I would say, what am I? What am I? I'm, I'm the major expressionistic painting of punk rock in L.A. And that went on for a while, and then punk rock died, and I sort of had a crush where nobody was looking at my art. And now I'm painting again and coming back and doing more mild things. I don't know if they're mild. <laughs> well, let's just say I'm a little more serious this time around. But I've always painted. That's what I do. As long as I can do that, uh, I'm happy. Right. So you've been in over 100 
movies and <laughs> TV shows. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, movies like The Frog. <laughs> right. A movie, a jail movie where I was the matron of the jail and I, my name was Slutface. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, I have done movies that people just can't even imagine were ever done. When you look back at everything, what I love are some it. of the, I think it's the really favorite funny. ones? Oh, my favorite what, one. My favorite one was yeah. never done. And, no? No, but it was the greatest story. It was about this um, this fish. That's uh, All these fish are swimming upriver, and they happen to pass a girl's camp, and they grow these giant dicks. And so they crawl up on the water, and they uh, I crawl up on the water because, uh, well, never mind. I crawl up on the water, and... Uh, I open up the tent, and there's this horrendous-looking thing. And, you know, the director's going, go on, fuck her, fuck her, fuck her, fuck her. It's, it was a very funny movie. <laughs> it was totally absurd. I love absurdity. It's like the theater of the ridiculous. I mean, these movies, these low-budget movies, in a way, I'm addicted to them because they. I really love the theater of the ridiculous. It's the best thing I ever did. And it's totally not known and... There's, I even did a tape of it to try and recreate it. Um, it's just lost. But these bad movies, man, they, bad movies, that's what I call them. They'd die if I said that. But anyway, these bad movies have taken the place of the theater of the ridiculous in my heart. So do you write about that in the Swimming Underground, or is that... No, 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 no. I just uh, write about, you know, this chick who gets involved with Warhol. And uh, and it's not really about Warhol. It's about the mole people around Warhol because nobody knows about them either. It wasn't Warhol. It was these these insanely intelligent, incredibly gay, I mean, just lethal people, you know, with giant drug habits, but they were fabulous. And I loved them. So that's why I wrote the book. I love them. They protected me. They took me to another level in acting that was completely absurd. Um, and I had so much fun. I was doing gender slippage before it even started. I mean, in the Mario Monte, uh, Maria Montez movie. Oh, no, it's Hedy Lamar. The Hedy Lamar movie. I mean, if you're faced with Mario Montez, who's an insane drag queen, I mean, you don't compete with her like all the other girls do. No, no, no. I was the boy. I was her lover. I And I did it, I mean, it's not in the script, really. I was just supposed to play a policeman, but it's just automatic. What you do is you pull out her chair and light her cigarette. It was fabulous. It was really insane. We would entertain people just by walking into a restaurant, and we knew it. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. It was like street theater. Totally great. But I wanted to capture all of that. And so I wrote the book, and I do capture all of that. But, um, you know, at one point I pushed girl on the subway because I'm pissed off at her. But believe me, I never did that. (laughs) (laughs) But I was so pissed off I could write that because I wanted to so much. Right. Anyway. I don't know. It's because... I don't know how, you know, people, tons, so many people have written about Andy Warhol, but people haven't written about the people at the factory. And- but they were it. They were the thing. They really were. I mean, Andy's phenomenal. He's a workaholic. He's uh, extremely funny when he wants to be. And he's just fascinated by stardom. That is his thing. Um, and he, instead of, also, he, 
well, he's fascinated by stardom, and he did become a star, but I think it was a coffin after a while. But the other thing is, you know, this is a time when all the gay artists were acting. You know, if you met them, they would say, how do you do, Mary? But Warhol would come up, and he'd be so gay. He'd just throw it in your face, and you wouldn't even know it, and you'd get uncomfortable. It was fabulous. It was wonderful. He was brave. Nobody gets that. Really brave. And all of his movies were all about the boys of the night. They were all about fags. They were all about homosexualness when it wasn't allowed. Yeah, which was great. It was great. He's the first person to do that. Yeah, that it was embraced, you know. I mean, this is so many years before Stonewall, before any of that. Yes. And also, it was scary because he also, I mean, talk about, you know, mild ad-libbing and eating Raoul. This man did movies where you didn't know if these people were real or were sort of acting. And the people half the time didn't know either. But it was, I mean, it was really incredible the, what happened on screen. It was this bizarre thing. So um, I'd ask you, you know, of all the, the movies, which were your favorites, if there's one, you know, one or two movies that, you know, you tell people, like, take a look at this, this kind of is, you know, this is me or this is what is representative of me on film, what are those? Hmm. Or are there any? Representative of me. I don't know, because I know I have this very scary image, although that's not me at all. Um, I think the best movie I've done and the most intelligent movie I've done is Eating Raul. I mean, I once gave a lecture where I compared, uh, you know, Paul and Mary to America and uh, poor Robert, you know, to Mexico and gave a political lecture about how we were devouring Mexico. Um, the the movie is kind of incredible. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, yeah, and it just, I mean, just it plays so much into like that Reagan 80s. I know. It just sets up America everywhere. And people have come to me and they say, oh, Mary, why did you do that movie? You act so nice. I want to see you act really mean. (laughs) (laughs) And I get parts where, you know, the director practically salivates and goes, okay, you're going to do the lesbian thing. Oh, jeez. So you're not like Evelyn Togar in real life? I had a great time with that movie. (laughs) <laughs> Perhaps I am not like that, but nevertheless, that's my second best movie. I loved playing Ella and Tokar. Yeah, that movie, that's another one that just does not get old. It never will. No. I don't know where I came up with that. I didn't plan. You know what I planned to do with Rock and Roll High School? I planned to act like Eve Arden and get a nice TV series. I walked out on the set, and I swear to God, within two seconds, Evelyn Togar was born. And another person who never, never interrupted me when I started to go off on was Alan. He always let me do what I wanted. I mean, he was shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Really shocked. Those movies that came out of the the Corman studio, I mean, and the the talent that came out of that, I mean, with with Arkish and with Louis Teague and The Lady in Red. I I love Louis Teague. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were talking about him with the Death Race 2000 episode and that he had done the second unit and the editing and everything. Super talented guy. Yeah, he was. Also, he was the one. He ran a, um, I think he's the one. I get so mixed up now. Uh, He ran a little movie theater and he was doing Warhol films and stuff. All those, I think that's right. I'm not sure, though. (laughs) Because that was the first time that I ever saw Jim Morrison. Gerard got him to 
come to uh, this Warhol screening, and it was you went down an, a sort of staircase or something, and uh, he got Jim to sing after uh, one of Warhol's movies. It was so funny. Jim Morrison was so drunk. I mean, he looked like a fool, and he had a stupid leather outfit on, and he got on the stage, and within two seconds, he became God. You just <laughs> wanted to lick the bottom of his feet. Oh, wow. It was, you just couldn't stand it. What's this? What's what? This card. Doris, the dominatrix. Discipline, mild or severe, as you require. Call for an appointment. Oh, that. Uh, she's some madwoman who attacks people with a whip. She was at that swingers party. She gave you a card? She gave everybody her card. Hi, my name is Susan Sager. I am an actress, former 80s icon, and stand-up comedian. <laughs> So how did you first get into uh, acting and into comedy? Well, I wanted to be um, a Shakespearean actress. I was a very serious actress. I have a Bachelor of Arts in in uh, theater arts and acting and directing. Only you can't make money doing Shakespeare. And um, I found uh, when I was in college, I did my first comedy, and it was just intoxicating. So... Um, Right out of college, I got a job doing dinner theater. I don't know if you guys remember dinner theater. It was very big in the late 70s. And um, with Robert Morse, who is now on Mad Men. Um, and, uh, but he, we were doing Play It Again, Sam by Woody Allen. And I toured for a year. That was my first union job right out of, like, right out of college. I graduated in June. I started this job in August. I toured for a year and then um, came out to Los Angeles. A couple of years later, I worked out of Miami after that and then um, started as a waitress at the comedy store because I wanted to do three-camera live sitcom. That's really what I wanted to do. And as I was waitressing, I started to take improv classes um, at the comedy store in the afternoon with people like Andy Garcia, who was at the time you know, just a comedian, not a, a serious actor like he, he turned out to be. And um, the thing was to try to get them to ask you to not be a waitress anymore so you could perform there because you couldn't do both. And so after about 10 months, I got my big chance and um, started doing improv in the main room at the comedy store. And back then, this was 1980, so 81, I guess. So back then, Robin, you remember Robin Williams went, um, he had this sitcom called Mork and Mindy. And he was huge, huge star at that time. And he was a big improv actor. And every Monday and Tuesday night at the Comedy Store, he performed with a group called the Comedy Store Players. That was just like today. Now, looking back, heavy hitters of comedy. Martin Short was in there, Bernadette Briquette. Um, just really uh, fabulous people in that group. And I was in, you know, starting the ranks of, you know, in the first group, and then I made it to, graduated to the second one. And one night, this guy came, uh, he was a boyfriend of one of the waitresses. He was the assistant director on a film called Eating Raul, and the actress, Betty Thomas, do you remember who she is? She's now a big director. Um, yeah, she was on Hell Street Blue. She was tall, blonde, I can't remember her character name. Well, she was, orig she was the original Doris the Dominatrix, 
we couldn't be more different because, you know, I'm five foot three, dark hair, petite, and she's six foot two, blonde. Um, but I was on stage and it was kind of one of those things. The assistant director went, they had three days to replace her because she had to go do location shoots for Hill Street Blues. And it was just one of those kind of things where I was in the right place at the right time. And the AD kind of looked up and saw me and went, that girl. And so Eating was my first movie audition. And I got the part, <laughs> which is retarded. It never happens like that. So what did you think of the script when you read it, when you saw that Doris the Dominatrix character? Oh, well, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because meeting Paul Bartel, you know, was um, was a trip because, you know, they were in a panic and, because he had three days to replace her. And because when they started shooting the movie, I know you've interviewed other people about um, – about this, but you know, they, they had a little bit of money and they would shoot for a while and then they'd run out of money and try to fund it again. So they were just kicking up production again. I don't know how much footage had already been shot, but none of the door shots. So when I went to, uh, Paul Bartel called me, invited me to his apartment to read, which is like everything they tell you not to do in acting one you know, some guy's apartment that I didn't know, you know, and, but I was like, you know, this is my, my big chance, my audition. And, um, I wore, um, this dance skin back in the day, there was these leotards and everybody in the disco days wore them. And I wore this black leotard with a skirt that you kind of untied. And I had black fishnets on and big six inch green glitter heels. And when he opened the door, I took the skirt off and let it fall to the ground. And I, stuck my hand out and said, hello, my name is Susan Zinger. And he just started laughing. And um, so he just started throwing script pages at me. I never saw the whole story when I auditioned for it. There, I never read the whole script or anything. It was just, here, read this, you know, read that. And it was all the different scenes of Doris as the, because um, she's really, uh, you know, a normal young mother. So there were scenes of her like that. And then, you know, and, impersonating a border patrol officer and a nun and a nurse. And he just, and I just used all these characters in my head that I was doing on stage at the time. And I got the part right on the spot. That was one of the, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, really it's a great part for um, how much screen time you get. You get to really play around with all of those different facets of this person and play these different characters. Yeah, it was it was so much fun. And the thing about Paul as a director, you know, and after that, I, I did get to do, you know, other movies and stuff. So I, I had something to compare it to. But the thing that I thought was so cool was he always let me have the first shot, you know, without direction. He wanted to see what I would come up with, you know, because he really we had so much fun at the audition. We were just laughing and you know, I was just pulling stuff out of, you know, nowhere because I had no idea what I was really doing. I never had a movie audition. I was at some director's house, you know, and it was very cool when we got to the set. He gave not only to me, but all the actors a freedom to do. The first shot was always what was in your head. And then if he didn't like it or he wanted to tweak it, but he wanted to see what you came up with first. And I just I just thought that was really very cool. And, um, yeah, he was, he was just an amazing guy. I, I got to do another movie with him too, scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. I don't know right. if you guys have seen that. Yeah. And, um, he actually also cast me, there was a show back in the day. It was, um, 
not the Twilight Zone, the other one. Was it Twilight Zone? Amazing Stories. Amazing Stories. That was it. And he directed one. And uh, he had me come to his place because by then we'd already done eating our orders. And he said, I'm rewriting this for you. Can you read this for me? And then when I got to the audition, he goes, it's just a formality. Don't worry. Um, This is yours. And um, two days later, they called me and they said Spielberg had nixed me. And I didn't get to I didn't get to do it. And they cast this girl named Penny Pizer. And they said because she had more TVQ than I did. So he felt so bad, so bad. And then, you know, there was supposed to be a sequel to Eden Rowell. It was called Bland Ambition. Um, and I was going to play every female character that was like under five lines in a different disguise. <laughs> but we never got to do, you know, we never did, the movie never got made. Um, but that was his way to make up for me, you know, to me for having to tell me I didn't get the part after all, an amazing story. See, I even blocked the name of it. <laughs> but you remembered Spielberg. Oh yes, and you know what was so bad it was like a couple of weeks later he was on like you know Good Morning America, one of those morning shows, going yes, I've always given untried talent a chance, and I'm like throwing things at the TV, going now you don't. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I've had a lot of you know. That's the thing about acting, you know, you just never know. Um, nothing, nothing's for real till you walk on the set, you know, really. Um, anything can happen, you know, which is part of the excitement of it, for sure. You said that they hadn't shot any of the Doris stuff when you first got on the the role. When when you went in for the shooting, did they kind of shoot all of your stuff in a row, or did you kind of come back multiple times? No, that's a great question. No, the first weekend that I shot, we shot the party scene. The where you first see her, we're at the swing. They're at the swingers party, and and um, uh, Gary Till just brings in uh, Paul Bartel, you know, and I lasso him. And they had a, a stunt guy or some kind of rodeo guy that did the actual lassoing. You know, they just showed my hand doing it. Um, so that was the first uh, weekend that we shot, and then it took a year to do the rest of all of it. Um, so so that Dora scene was in the can, and I guess that's what he needed to show it, you know, to try to get more money. And, um, yeah, and it was great because that first, that first day on the set, you know, and it was at some seedy apartment in Hollywood. I can't even remember where we shot that party scene, but I just remember standing there looking at Paul and going, okay, this is for every man who's ever done me wrong. And then I went, lick my boots big, and everybody just broke out laughing because, you know, I'm, I was pretty little, and, you know, it was just funny. <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, and, and it was like after that was shot, he, you know, it was like, don't cut your hair, don't gain or lose any weight, because they never knew when they would find the money again to to pick up shooting. And it, it was it was about a year it took us to, to finish it, because the second scene I shot was the... Um, uh, the the nun scene where um, she's trying to scare Raul, you know, um, telling him. And that was the day I met um, Robert Beltran when we shot that together. Um, and, you know, there was a romance on the set there. Did you know the untold story there? No, do tell. Yes, Robert and I, was, it was the first movie for both of us. We fell madly in love. 
and moved in together quite quickly um, because he was an actor from Bakersfield. This was his first movie, and he was just moving to L.A. So, yeah, we're still really good friends to this day. But, yeah, we, we had a, you know, our first movie, and we had a big romance, too. It was very nice. <laughs> That's that's very cool because uh, you know he just he seems like such a very charming guy obviously in the film and was just did you find him as charming in person I guess he is one of the nicest guys you've ever I'm like I said we're still friends and a year ago he and Mary and I met and had lunch and um, at this little place in Los Feliz which is just outside of Hollywood here and it was just like. I'm telling you what, you know, 30 years just kind of wiped away, and the three of us were laughing and, you know, telling stories, and I thought, wouldn't that be, Paul would be just smiling down on us, you know, to, to see us together, still friends, you know, after all this time, because they, they are, you know, they're just some of the coolest people ever, um, really ever. Now, Robert's a, a great, and he's a great actor, really good actor. And I, you know, Mary, I just adore. We we can pick up after not seeing each other for years and just laugh and talk just like we saw each other, you know, last week. Um, so, yeah, that's very cool. And now I'm back in L.A. I was gone for 17 years. I just moved back here a little less than a year ago. So I'm acclimating again. <laughs> yeah, we were going to ask, how was Mary Warnoff to work with? Love her. I mean... You know, she's such a colorful person and has had, I mean, having worked with Andy Warhol, and we had a link there because my dad was a designer, and he went to college with Andy Warhol, and they worked together design, doing window displays in Pittsburgh because they went to Carnegie Tech. And, you know, Mary was one of the factory girls in the Warhol movies. Um, she was in Chelsea Girls. That, that, that was her big one. She's hilarious. So much fun to be around, and I adore her. Adore her. In the uh, the, the big uh, swing party uh, scene towards the end of the film, you uh-huh. play against you play against real Don Steele, of course. You know, well known uh, at the time was a radio DJ, and he was in yes. several Paul Bartels films. So I was wondering if you had any memories of working with him, and and sort of how he was as a person. Well, he he was funny. He was really a funny dude. But, you know, I didn't remember how funny until, you know, the movie was re-released last March um, on Criterion. So now I'm a Criterion diva, which makes me very excited. Uh, and I, I was afraid, you know, I, I got my copy and everything, and I was afraid to look at it because there was a series of outtakes. And I thought, if I'm not in those outtakes, I'm going to be so bummed out. And so it took me like a week or two to look. And then the very last thing they show is that scene with the real Don Steele at the door. And it's like 20 takes because he kept flubbing it. We laughed so hard through through the whole shooting of that. Um, You know, he was, he was a great fun person to be around. He he really was. And Buck Henry, I couldn't believe I was, you know, like with all these people. It was nutty to me because, you know, I was just a real newbie real newbie at that time, you know, 24, 25. I don't know. I was really young. Um, (laughs) I'm really old now. Um, But no, it was very cool. And, you know, they had to rewrite that scene for me because I was supposed to, in the original script, Doris was supposed to be in the hot tub. And I said, I'm not taking my top off. I am not going to be, you know, I, I, I wouldn't do it. You know, I'm a comedian. I'm not, that's not who I am. And I said, besides, a dominatrix would never take her clothes off in front of clients, ever. It wouldn't happen. 
you know, because I researched it a little bit. And, uh, and, uh, uh, so they took it out and made me, that's when they did the thing with me walking out, um, the, the couple on the leash to get me out of there before the hot tub scene. Well, that would be really bad karma if they killed you too. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to let it happen. <laughs> I wasn't going to let it happen, but I do want to say one, t- tell you guys one little antidote story that I thought was very cool. The editor is Alan Tamayan and, um, uh, there was a screening, I forget, but they, they screened it a lot for investors and so forth. And he came up to me after one of the screenings and said, hey, just want to ask you, is there anything that you saw in dailies or this or that that you feel, you know, that I, I took out or that you'd like to see back in? And I couldn't believe he asked me because the scene where the nun falls off the chair was not in the original cut. And I said, Alan, I would never have said anything, but since you asked me, please put that fall back in. Because, you know, I fall right off, right out of frame. And there's just, I mean, it's just seeing somebody fall, it's funny. It just, it, it, it just is. And he put it back in. And when the show premiered at Filmax and he came up to me afterwards and he went, thank you. One of the best laughs in the film. Thank you. Thank you. So he was just, everybody was so giving, you know, and Ann Kimmel, the producer, she took me to the pleasure chest one afternoon. I had just come, I was working at a restaurant called Cafe Figaro and I was wearing little white anklets and like a country girl skirt and a Peter Pan collar and looking like Miss, you know, um, Mary Jane, whatever. And then they take me, she took me to the pleasure chest and I walked out in the doors of Dominatrix outfit and everybody that worked in the pleasure chest was just dying, you know, over the change and stuff. But everybody on the film, it was like, it was a really cool collaborative, you know, effort. And, um, nobody expected it to do as well as it did for sure. I have to ask about your research into Doris the Dominatrix. And <laughs> you opened that can of worms. I want to know, I know. now. <laughs> I know I did. Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I read stuff. Uh, you know, of course, there was no internet then, but, you know, um, but it was funny because um, I had a boyfriend at the time who was a comedian whose name will not go mention, but it was so funny. I, I came home the night, the night before I was going to shoot that, that party scene, that first scene. I said, oh, can, can I tie you up just once? I just, I just want to see what it feels like. And he goes, babe, don't bring your work home from the office. So I never got to do it. <laughs> oh, what a killjoy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, since then, it, it's been, you know, I've had a lot of, like, kind of creeped out things, you know, people that really think I'm a dominatrix. And several years ago, somebody, and it was a guy in Albania took all the scenes of Doris the Dominatrix, took out all the comedy and laugh lines and made it look like I was a real dominatrix. And my son, who was like 16 years old at the time, reported it because he didn't want his mom on it. <laughs> Looking like that. But the guy's name was something like Ultimate Toe Sucker or something, you know, crazy like that. But yeah, I mean, there were a lot of S&Mers that thought, you know, they'd met their dream girl, you know, when... <laughs> When the movie came out, it's like, no, I'm just an actress. Um, at my, I went to high school in Dayton, Ohio, and in the paper, they, the, the article, they captioned it by saying, from Fairview High to S&M Queen. You know, it's like, oh, really? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I, so I, just, 
I just love the whole scene where you're there with the, the little boy, the kid, and you're explaining to them, it's just acting, you know, and you're just like, good mom by day and then dominatrix by night because it pays well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, I was so lucky, you know, so, so lucky. And that, you know, it, it was like I spoke at a at a 30-year, you know, um, anniversary thing for the movie and and it was just like the fact that and I put put the leather corset on although I wore a skirt with it but I thought you know the fact that that 30 years later people are still even interested in the movie you know so I figured 30 years later I can put this corset on because damn it it still fits so <laughs> yeah it's, it's 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 amazing it really is that that you know nobody ever thought it would be anything but it was funny you know like my parents and stuff because I was you know, my 20s and stuff, it was just like, you know, they were all excited and stuff. But it wasn't until I did a movie with Sean Connery that my father really accepted that I was an actress. Then he thought, you know, okay, that's that's real Hollywood. What was your first reaction when you finally saw Eating Raul finished? Um, well, I always thought the movie was really funny. But it's really um, very difficult to see yourself that big. Because... Um, you know, like the gap in my teeth was like three feet across the screen. And, you know, it's just, um, but it was, I've, I've always been very proud of it and proud of the film and, and proud of, of my work, you know, in it because, um, you know, as a character actress and, you know, that was always my thing, comedy. And, and as you know, we talked about before, I'm, I'm, I haven't been, I haven't done acting in a, in a long time, but now I'm a stand up comic. And, um, you know, I just, the, the I, I just love making people laugh. That's that's my thing. You know, you think about it. You know, a few films sort of last years and years, and as you said, it was it's been about thirty years since the film came out. And when, right. when you when you interact with people, uh, what do they say to you about it? Like, why do they still enjoy it all these years later? I know it's just crazy. And you know, I do a joke about it in my in uh, in my set, and I didn't talk about it for like a really long time. Um, because I didn't want, you know, it, it has, I didn't want it to color what I'm doing now, you know, or to try to, you know, rest on something I did so long ago to try to promote, you know what I mean? I wanted my stand up to stand on its own, I guess, basically, but I do tell a joke and this is honest to God, true story. And I won't give you the whole punchline, but this kid came up to me, you know, a guy like in his thirties and he goes, Oh my God, it really is you. When I was 14, I used to jack off to you all the time. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in my 50s now. That is the nicest thing anybody has ever said to me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, hey, you know, if I, at, 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 you know, at my age now, if people are still jacking off to me, good for me. Good for me. <laughs> <laughs> you had, as you said, a few opportunities to work with Paul, you know, class struggle in Beverly Hills and things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, yeah. you talked a little bit about, you know, sort of like working with him on the set. And he was always great to work with in terms of, you know, sort of seems like a quote unquote actor's director in that way. Exactly, um, yeah. What I mean, beyond the casting, do you have any uh, great uh, fond memories of, of him as a person, maybe off the set or during your time with him? Oh yeah, I mean, because uh, we we hung out quite a bit, went to a lot of, um, you know, because they were trying to get the movie made for so long that he would go, okay, sorry, you know, you got to come to another screening. So there were lots of dinners, lots of, 
you know, um, just events and stuff. And, and, and the one that comes to my mind, because this is my I Hate Carrie Fisher story, um, actually where it started, um, was it was Paul's 50th uh, birthday. And um, there was this big uh, party for him, you know, to celebrate his 50th birthday. And Marvin Hamlish is playing piano. I don't even know where we were. We were at some big, fancy, gated community. I, I can't even remember. But, um, uh, you know, and Paul's being so gracious and wonderful. And he was always, you know, he always wanted everybody to know everybody. Like, if there was somebody from one part of his life, he wanted them to meet the people in this part of his life. You know, he was just a very warm guy. And... um uh, I just remember standing there and I had this date, um, cause it was a hard, a hard to get dates after playing a dominatrix because people really thought that, you know, I was a wacko, but I, I met this young Jewish attorney, very good looking. I was so excited. And he was my date that night and Carrie Fisher spent the whole night hitting on him. And I was so pissed. <laughs> I told Paul I was going to throw her in the pool if she hit on him one more time and he was like, no, you wouldn't want to do that, you know, because it was like, you know, he was very non-confrontational, you know, but yeah, but that started my I Hate Carrie Fisher rant. That started it. What else carries it on now? I, I auditioned for When Harry Met Sally for, for that role five times. And I thought it was in the bag. When I walked out of there on that last audition, you know, Rob Reiner and I were pointing at each other's gaps in our teeth and laughing. And I'd read with Billy Crystal and she'd been cast the whole time, but they don't tell you that they're just casting what they call availability in case she couldn't do it. So that's why I hate her. She hit on my boyfriend and she took my part. <laughs> but, you know, the best, re- the best revenge is, you know, look at her now, please. Right. <laughs> Nobody, I, I don't know, uh, you know, you still have people telling you that they've masturbated to you, so I don't know about, <laughs> maybe you won in the end. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what I say is, you know, she says, help me, Juan Canova, you're my only hope. No, sweetheart, Jenny Craig is, okay? Um, and that's very mean and terrible, but, you know, she's she's a mess. She's We're both the same age now, but she's, you know, she's a mess. But, you know, I... I don't, I don't, you know, begrudge her success or anything like that. It's just sort of a joke, you know, sort of like, well, that's, that's fun to say. I hate Carrie Fisher. I don't really know her. I only know her that she tried to pick up my date that night. But, you know, that was enough for me to hell with her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is about me, you know, please. And that was the fun thing about Mary. We used to talk, we talked a lot about men together. And she, she's just. I don't know. She was hilarious because I I was dating this guy. I can't remember. His name was Miles something. He had just played Tarzan in a movie and I'd had a blind date with him. And I think Mary spent the whole day shooting, just trying to get every bit of info. And there was nothing to tell her because there was like nothing happened. There was no chemistry, but boy, she wanted to know. Inquiring minds and all that, you know. How did you get the role in the Presidio? In the Presidio? Um... I, you know, I just auditioned for it. I, I had an agent. I was doing this really um, cool, cool play that this great friend of mine wrote um, in, um, uh, it was called The Stephen Weed Show, and it was a send-up of the 70s, because it was already like 89 or whatever. And it was written by Sean Sheps, who went on to write um, her first movie that she got produced was Encino Man, that she wrote for Polly Shore. And she's written a lot of stuff and wrote on weeds and she wrote drumline and anyway, she was doing the show and there were one, two, three, four, five girls in the cast and we all auditioned for the same movie, which is weird because we were different, all completely different types. 
and it was just like a regular audition, and I went in, and um, they videotaped it. Um, Peter Himes was the director, and he was shooting in San Francisco. They were shooting um, the stuff at the Army base, and the tape was sent to him, and I didn't even find out until three weeks later that um, I got the part. It was just like he looked at the tapes, he went, again, that girl, and I got the part. That's great. Now, you talked about how you took some time off from uh, acting for your family. What's it like? Uh, what do you like about doing improv and stand-up? Well, you know, in, in uh, improv and, and, and working live is what I think, because I, I pretty much um, retired. I, I called myself a recovering actor. It's like, you know, being an alcoholic. It's sort of always there, but you're just not doing it, you know? Um you know, I, I, it's a live, you know, coming from a theater background and stuff. It's interacting with an audience and stuff. Um, improv was the spontaneity, spontaneity. I can even talk the spontaneity in the, being in the moment every at every turn because nothing is scripted, you know. And doing improv really has helped my stand up immensely because. Um, I, I'll just go off on a tangent off the cuff or talk to somebody in the audience, and it taught me how to write on my feet, you know, and think on my feet really fast. And and that's helped a lot with stand-up. But, you know, I never set out to be a stand-up. Um, like I said, I, I took time off. My son was born in December of 91, and I was, you know, in the thick of it, you know, just done a TV series called um, Totally Hidden Video, which was like a candy camera show. And, um, you know, was working, just doing stuff here and there and going to like auditions and taking him in his baby carrier. And and I'm going, oh, my God, it was just it wasn't about me anymore. And I I was already in my 30s, like I was 36 when I had him. So I didn't want to miss any of it. So I decided, you know what, this isn't about me right now. I just want, I don't want to miss anything. I can always acting will be there. I can always play a grandma later or whatever, but, you know, I wanted to be a mom, and so I was a single mom, and um, then um, when my son was two, I got married to somebody who was not baby daddy, and then we adopted two girls from China, so I have three three kids all together, and it was just, you know, for the years that they were little and all that stuff, it was just all encompassing for me, and I wrote a play that got purchased, but um, you know, I did the odd thing here and there, but I lived in Florida for 16 years. And, um, when I got divorced, uh, a friend of mine took me to see this female stand-up. Her name's Mary Ellen Hooper. Great stand-up if you ever get a chance to see her, um, do, because she's, she's terrific. But, um, we had an interchange during her set and, um, she asked in the audience, does anybody have any adopted children? And I raised my hand. I said, yes. Yeah. She goes, well, do they look like you? And I said, well, they're from China, so no. And everybody started laughing. And she said, oh, well, we got the word they're from China part, so we didn't need the so no. And then she got a big laugh, and my friend starts nudging me. See, see, you're funny. You're still funny. You can do this. And anyway, on a dare on August 13th, and it will be five years. Yeah, it'll be five years this next month. On a dare, I said one night only, I contacted this club in Tampa and I told them who I was and that I wanted to do uh, you know, whatever their open mic night was. And they said, great. And um, I got all my friends to come and my book club and I was substitute teaching and all the teachers came and I packed the audience and it went really well. But I said one night only, just, I just want to prove I can do it. 
and um, the club invited me back for some contest, and then I started working with an all-female group called the Funny Divas. I ended up touring Florida for three years with them, and one night only, I'm still got a show next Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, you know. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's so great because I write it, produce it, direct it, and star in it, and it's, you know, it's my voice. And, and I think, you know, I did try dabble in stand up when I was younger, but I didn't have as much to say then, you know, but I got a lot to sing. <laughs> and, well, um, and I do. And I, yeah. I just always, uh, am reminded of the, uh, scene from the old, uh, Mel Brooks film, history of the world, where he, uh-huh. he's in the unemployment line and they ask him what he is. And he says, stand up philosopher. So it's kind of like you live long enough you got more to say, I guess. You're you're now not only a, a stand-up person, but you're also uh, making jokes, but probably have a little philosophy and life lesson behind it. Well, right. And, you know, my big trip is, you know, I mean, I, I took I took a stand-up class back in the day, you know, in, in around the time I was, you know, in the 80s and stuff. And and um, this class I took, that she said, you know, you, you got to ask yourself four questions before you hit the stage. Who are you? What are you trying to say? How do you want to be perceived? And is what you're saying universal? Answer those four questions before you start writing. And I really use that in my head again, you know, going back. And I realized that at my age now, I would like to speak for menopausal women everywhere. That's great. Well, speaking of which, so where... I... <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say, well, since you're doing that, where can people catch your show? Okay. Uh, I'm going to be next Saturday. Let me get my calendar here. Um, and I'm, I'm working on a company. I have a website. It's called VixenComedy.com uh, with my partner, Aniria. And um, we were in Funny Divas together, and we reformed the Funny Divas, and we'll be doing that. But as solo out in L.A., next Saturday, I believe, I'm getting into my calendar here, um, Next Saturday, August the 3rd, I will be at Formosa Cafe in West Hollywood. It's one of the oldest kind of industry hangout places, and they have this really cool patio um, where they used to do jazz back in the 40s and 50s and stuff, but now they're doing comedy on the weekends. The Funny Diva Show will be at the Old Naples Comedy Club in Naples, Florida, December 12th through the 14th. And then you can find out the information on Vixen Comedy, V-I-X-E-N, VixenComedy.com. And I have a page on there. My partner has a page. And I also <laughs> I'm, I became a minister, and I do um, comedy nuptials. Um, I do Laugh.com, where I interview the, the people that are getting married and do the wedding like a roast. It's, it's a really fun uh, wedding. <laughs> So, and now that um, the in California gay marriages are on again, you know maybe um, maybe I'll get to do some more weddings. But that's really fun to do. It sounds like it would be a, a hoot. It is, and you know, it's I did I did um, you know I've done a few parties. I was doing you know stuff like that in in Florida, and then I did a wedding here in Burbank, and it was just at the Equestrian Center. And this bride was brought in on a horse, and just beautiful. Um, and the wedding was, everybody said it was the most fun wedding they'd ever been to because, you know, I just sit down, I ask them questions, I ask them both the same question, but they can't see what the other one's answering. And the stuff really pretty much writes itself. And so, 
you know, and then in, in California, there's two things you need in a wedding. You have to take, do you take, and um, uh, I now pronounce you. You have to ask the questions, do you take this man, do you take this other person, and I now pronounce you uh, husband and wife, husband, whatever it is. Other than that, a wedding ceremony can be whatever you want it to be. So that's been a lot of fun, putting, putting those together. But that's all on the website, vixencomedy.com. Or anything you want to add that maybe we forgot to ask you about? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I work with my partner. We're doing, we do Vixen Comedy, um, puts sketch and stand up together. Um, in the, uh, almost halfway through writing a play, and it's a play about stand up. And um, so that's on the Vixen calendar. Hopefully it'll be coming up and being produced in in Los Angeles, I hope by the beginning of 2014, I hope, I don't know. Um, it depends, or at least by the end of the year. Um, but I wrote, yeah, I wrote a, a musical, the book for a musical several years ago. And I, I'm, I really like to write too. Um, but as you get older, you know, you just do whatever. It's a create, it's a creative thing. I mean, with acting, with stand up with any of it, I think when you feel like you were born with that in you or it is in you or you can't help that it's in you, um, it's not about the money at that point as it wasn't with eating Raul because none of us got paid till like for a year, I think, or whatever it was, but for the love of the art. And that's always been my thing, not so much about the success or being famous or recognized or any of that, but to create, you know, to create something, to make something that's, that's, and, and, and I found the same thing, you know, with raising my family, you know, I was PTA mom, I was craft mom, I was, you know, you know, um, creative snack mom at soccer, you know what I mean? I think you don't have to be in, in this industry to be creative. I think creativity comes, you know, in, in cooking a fabulous meal that maybe, you know, you made the recipe on, do you know what I'm saying? But a lot of people just, uh, have have to create something and I'm just one of those. And you get the benefit of finding out guys were jerking off to you when they were in their yeah, teens. Yeah, there's nothing better than that. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll be on my deathbed going, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Richard Blackburn, Mary Warnoff, and Susan Sager for talking to us. You can also find out more about their work, of course, at our website, projection-booth.com. If you're in the L.A. area, Susan lives out there and she does stand-up, and you can find links to her upcoming shows at our website, projection-booth.com. All right, so back to Eating a Raul. It was a film, and, uh, you know, it's small little bit so we are back talking about Eating Raul, but this film, for a small comedy that it is, has had a lot of side projects, so one of which being the Eating Raul comic book. I don't know. Did you guys get to uh, read the comic book? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, I picked it up at a Comic-Con in Detroit last fall. Nice. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, did you even know we were doing this episode at the time? No. <laughs> wow. How could you not buy that? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I bought two comic books that day that were sort of unusual: the Eating Raul comic book and the Marvel comic um, biography of Pope John Paul II. Nice. So they well, had, he wears a cape, right? Does he <laughs> Magneto in that one? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty tragic though with all those rings that the Pope wears. Gets his hands ripped off. It's it was pretty bad. He wasn't yeah. planning well. No, yeah, no, no, not at all. Not at all. So the 
comic book. Did you get a chance to look at it, Adam? I did not. Okay. I'm, I'm faking it right now and looking at it as we talk. <laughs> <laughs> My computer was faster, I'd say yes. Well, <laughs> well, you're not really missing a whole lot with the comic book. It's pretty much a faithful adaptation of the film, um, yeah. sort of shot by shot at times, and a lot of the dialogue. There's certain plot points that get pulled out, but it's pretty much an adaptation. It's really cool. Like The artwork is really nice, and they did a really nice job with it. Um, you know, it, it's fun. If you've never seen the film, it, it's, uh, it'll give you the whole film in a condensed comic book version. Yeah, they cut out some of the stuff with like Raul and and Paul and you know Paul trying to um, you know get get Raul kicked out of the country and then also Raul trying to to kill Paul and all that. But yeah, otherwise, uh, I mean, they really do a good job of condensing the entire story down to what like thirty two pages, something like that. And you're right, the artwork is great. I love that style of stuff, especially when. Uh, Paul hits the swinger in the stomach, and you get to see the, the swinger throwing up all over the place. It was pretty good. <laughs> you didn't see that in the movie. There's a lot of implied things in the movie because of the budget, I guess. Like a right. lot of the, uh, the, you know, any kind of like stabbing or anything kind of like that was done right off camera, like just under the camera. You couldn't see it. Right. Yeah, he was puking right below the sound effects. They they had a budget for sound effects, apparently. Because they were loud. Sounds definitely a lot cheaper. <laughs> yeah. That's why we're on a podcast, not a video cast. <laughs> oh, and that's why we're in outer space doing this. Yes. Podcast. The comic book seems to be a way to sell the film because <laughs> I noticed on the first page there's a thing at the bottom in the credits that says if you're interested in eating Raul of the film, contact this company and it had like address and a phone number. So to me it almost seems like the comic book was created to get maybe theaters interested or distributors or bookers or somebody. So I don't know exactly what the timeline is, but it seems like it came out right around the same time because there's no reference in the comic book that 20th Century Fox had picked it up. Oh, yeah, good point. And yeah, at the very end, I think it says, you know, did you like the comic? Now see the movie. Oh, that's, oh, that's a great promotional. It seemed like a really complex, for a movie with no budget, all of a sudden now they're coming out with comic books, you know, to promote the movie. It's weird. <laughs> it seems like it'd be something you come up later, but if you only have X amount of dollars, like we're going to promote this by doing an entirely different medium, and you know, completely different, put it out there, and then they'll want to watch the movie. You can forget all yeah. of that. <laughs> Did you ask about me when you guys talked? No, I'm sorry. All right, all right. keep going. So there's a comic book that's an adaptation that seems to come out right before the film comes out or around the same time. Then you have Eating Raul. The musical, which was an off-Broadway production sometime in the 90s. Is that correct, Mike? I believe so, yes. So, yeah. Actually, we talked to Jed Fewer, who adapted Eating Raul for the stage. So why don't we take another break and play that one? So how did you get involved with Eating Raul? One day, Paul Bartell called the David Geffen Company, and this must have been in, God, I don't know, 
85 or something like that, or no, even earlier, 83, whatever. Anyway, he called Geffen. The person there who's a very, very old dear friend of mine named Linda Opst, she's a producer now. She uh, wound up speaking with Paul and said, well, you know, my friend Jed was crazy about the film and uh, you should really speak with him about uh, about doing it uh, as a musical. Uh, anyway, Paul called and we met for dinner. That was the beginning of the whole thing. And it was a great relationship I had with him for many years subsequently and was so sorry to be at his funeral. Not, not all that long ago. It must be about seven or eight years ago. Anyway, that's how it began. And then for many, many years, we worked on it, wrote it, Finally, after much ado, uh, got it produced here in New York at the Union Square Theater. It was a difficult time because of Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, because of what Jeffrey Dahmer became so infamous for, at least one of the critics decided that Eating Raoul was a, was a tragic, just a dreadfully, horribly timed nightmare. In bad taste, as it were? This is what people thought the review was about, that ha having to do with Dahmer being exactly at the same time. I think opening night was practically uh, almost uh, concurrent with, with them having found... He was very hot in the news at, at the time that we opened. Completely coincidentally, of course. But, but I think that... Uh, I can't remember who the critic was. I think it may have been Mel Gussow at the time. So he's gone, too. Um... Anyway, he panned us in a, in a big way, and it was a problem. All the other all the other papers, as I recall, were were very very good, and uh, but the New York Times has your ultimate say. That was sort of the end of the show. It's been playing all around the world in many many languages ever since. But uh, as far as the New York, the New York uh, time, it was not it was not good. It was, it was very sad for all of us because we really had something that the audience loved. But uh, as you know, audiences loving it uh, is not enough. You've got to be critic-proof, at least to some extent, and uh, we were not. So how did you go about the adaptation? How did you and Paul work together? The man who was the, who, whom I chose as the lyricist, who, who was a very, very talented fellow, a guy named Boyd Graham, he really took the script and pretty much adapted it for the stage, for the musical stage, I should say. Uh, it, 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 he really deserves the credit for what it became. Um, Paul and he didn't get along all that well, but Paul knew in the end that, that Boyd deserved the credit for, for the adaptation, as it were. In terms of working together, it was really Boyd... Boyd and I, who worked together, it wasn't so much Paul. I mean, he was often in meetings and and such. Uh, Boyd and I both live in New York. Paul essentially lived in L.A. <clears throat> so there was a real divide between Paul and the two of us, not in any hostile way, just in terms of uh, sort of convenience and what mattered. Paul was really a movie maker, and, and his understanding of, of the theater was... Although he was a big theater lover, his understanding of how to write for musical theater w was limited. And, and he knew that. You know, he accepted that. So when it came to kind of capturing the, the musical essence of these characters, how did you go about that? Did you have certain themes that you were playing with for each character? Well, I remember when I saw the film, I really felt that it sang because its feet were so far off the ground. You know, it, it was so unreal 
that it sang. There were many, I remember sitting, I remember I saw the film accidentally. I was on my way with my girlfriend to see E.T. And there was eating Raul, and I had heard that it was funny. So I said, yes, I mean, we, we can see E.T. anytime. Let's go see this thing. And as I sat through the movie, I, I, I just, I'm repeating myself, I just felt that it sang. And, and so we approached, we approached the whole project through a musical lens. In other words, where are the spots where it so obviously sings? And we, uh, what we did was write the score almost before converting the script to the musical stage because it was so rich in, it, in its content in terms of making songs and musical moments and just dramatizing the whole project musically. And then we, we fitted the script around around the music, in a sense, around, I mean, around the musical moments, the musical numbers, and all of that. And I would say that's how we, how we started to approach it, which seemed to work out pretty well. I mean, it was such a rich, it, it, it was very, very rich for me, because you had the kind of operatic quality of Paul, and the uh, kind of sinewy, what am I going to do with my life, quality, musical qualities for Mary, and then, of course, as you point out, all of the Latin possibilities for Raul. So it was, it was a very, I, I won't say it was easy, because it was so... It was so rich with ideas, but but it was great fun to dive into it. You know, all, all all of these possibilities. You know, you were talking earlier about the the new thing that you're working on. That you know, you're going to try it out in Miami first, and then you know, other places, right? Does it usually play another city first, and then move to Broadway or New York or something? Yeah, you, you certainly don't want to go right to New York first because it's you know it's a high risk. You might as well try to work the kinks out of whatever your show is elsewhere, you know, away from the New York critics and, frankly, even away from the New York crowds. You're a lot better off allowing it to breathe elsewhere and improve it. With, as a matter of fact, uh, with the show that I did subsequent to Raul, we were in Durham, North Carolina, and then San Francisco before New York. You can travel around a bit before coming into New York, just to make sure that you really feel that it's sort of, let, let's use the phrase, New York-worthy. When you did Raul, where did you try it out before New York? Well, that's what I was going to get to. And, and it might have been unfortunate in that we were not able to do that. The producers felt very convinced that, that the show on, on the page was ready for the stage. And it was such an attractive offer that we, uh, we, I'm afraid we went with it. And I think we would have been better off had we gone out of town first. Unhappily, we did not. I remember that you had Adrian Smed as Raul. Who else was in the cast for that? I'm not sure that you'd know anybody else. The, the name of uh, Mary and Paul, the two leading characters, uh, was Eddie Corbich, who's done many Broadway Broadway things since then, but he's not a well-known actor. And a woman named uh, Courtney Collins, I believe is her name, Courtney Collins, whom I think shortly thereafter retired from show business. Not because of Raul, I hope. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> now, you said that it, it got panned by one critic when it played in New York and kind of killed it a little bit. How long did it run while it was there? My memory is six weeks, something like that. If not six, exactly very close to that, yeah. And then you said it's played in other locations around the world? It, yeah, it's played all over Germany, all over France and England and 
in the East. They translate it into all these languages. I, I can't imagine how they do that, because many of the lyrics make strong references to American things, and I can't imagine how they can both translate the references as well as make the rhymes that exist often having to do with the references. Do you see what I mean? How can you possibly, you know, you're, you're saying, well, I'm going to rewrite this in Czech. I'm going to rewrite in Czech, and it has to do with strict Americana stuff. I can't imagine how, I've always been mystified how they do that. But they do it. It's, it's a tradition that's done, been done for 100 years and continues to be done. How does that feel, hearing your stuff translated back from another language? Well, it's very interesting for me because I, I speak French to some extent, but it's it's the place where it's done most is in Germany. I don't speak any German. And I remember being at the Hamburg uh, opening and uh, just watching the crowd react. In a sense, you're watching the crowd react in a way more than the show itself because you're kind of remembering what's there and why they're why they're laughing, but of course it's, you know, every time you listen to the stage you're hearing German, and unless you're fluent extremely fluent <laughs> it's not going to make any sense, but of course when you know the show well, you kind of know where it is and where, what essentially what's being spoken, you know, it's great fun while frustrating sort of at the same time I've always felt myself lucky that you don't have to translate the music But it's got to be strange too to hear your music being played in probably some different configurations than you're used to as well. Right. The orchestras are always, to some extent, different, you know, so the orchestrations come out quite quite differently, you know. If you don't mind, can you tell me a little bit about your Slaughterhouse-Five musical? Yeah, well, it's been a, a mere 10 years in the making, which for a musical is, is not that long. There's like an expression in the... In, in the business, if you only have 30 years to live, don't write a musical. So <laughs> we're essentially in that in that uh, tradition. Um, well, uh, here's how it all happened. Uh, uh, Vonnegut happened to be a person whom I'd known all my life. He was a friend of my father. And one day the phone rings, and it's Vonnegut saying, can we have lunch? And I say, sure. So we meet for lunch, and he brings up the idea of doing it as an opera, but a legitimate opera, you know, like for the Metropolitan Opera. And I say, well, you know, that's not really my bag, and I'm interested in opera to some extent, but it's not something I see myself writing. And he said, well, think about it. So we we continued to meet periodically every month or so, and I finally said to him, look, give me the rights, give me both the operatic as well as the musical theater rights, and let's see what pops out, if anything. And he said, okay, okay. So that's how it began. And in in deference to him, I tried writing it as an opera, and I even worked with an operatic librettist, but it just didn't work for me, you know. And 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 Slaughterhouse-Five is so kind of complicated that if it were an opera, the audience wouldn't have the slightest idea of what was going on unless, you know, they were very familiar with the book. Anyway... I started working on it as a theater piece with a wonderful collaborator whose name is Adele Arenheim, A-H-R-O-N-H-E-I-M, who had wonderful ideas about how to musicalize it, <clears throat> but as a musical, not an opera, you know, and also where you understand what's being sung. You know, in opera, even when it's in English, you barely can understand the words. I'm glad that's not just me. It's not just you. <laughs> it's all of us. So 
she came up with a lot of what I felt were brilliant ideas, and here we are all these years later, and finally we're starting it. And uh, I don't quite know what else to tell you about it. We have <clears throat> we've made an album of it so far, uh, just to hear what we've written, and uh, we're we're ready to go. We we open in April. With something like Slaughterhouse Five, where you're dealing with so many multiple threads and everything, are you coming up for it with different themes and variations for what kind of period? Billy Pilgrim, where he's at in the timeline, or how how are you handling that? We feel that the best way to handle the different times and places are done with lights. After all, if you were to bring scenery up and down and off and on and left and right, it would become very clumsy. So we feel the most the way to expedite matters is to deal is to do it with lighting. Lighting is so brilliant these days. The technology has made lighting just super fantastic. And uh, we'll be working with a lighting designer and and having having him uh, create the world in which he's in and the different places and times so that it can be boom you're here boom you're there boom you're here without it being clumsy. It can't, if it's clumsy, it's going to be dull as dishwater. You know, if it looks like the sound of music, it's not going to work. If that was fine for the sound of music, but this has to really, really fly. And uh, I, I feel that uh, I, I feel optimistic and enthusiastic about the idea of lighting playing a, a large role in this production. And we'll see. If I'm wrong, we'll deal with it then. <laughs> you know, I've been wrong before. I've been looking at your website and, you know, obviously you talk about the work that you've done on the stage and, and your music. You talk about your band. You talk about your sculpture, all this. Oh. You also have a, a large section about animal issues. How did you get involved with animal rights? Well, I was very, very young. That. I remember remember Dick Cavett. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dick Cavett had a man named... Roger Karras. Um, he, he was interviewing a fellow named Roger Karras, and I just happened to be watching. I must have been, I don't know, 10 or something. I, I don't know what age. And and he was showing, uh, he was an animal activist, as they could call it, and he was showing a uh, films of the, the uh, seals being clubbed in Alaska. And somehow, as a young kid, that affected me very strongly. And I immediately started, you know, doing volunteer work and whatever I could for the Fund for Animals and the Humane Society of the United States. And I've been involved with it ever since. And to this day, I'm upset at how these creatures are mistreated. And uh, I'm now essentially a fundraiser for a lot of different organizations. Do my best to raise money. I, I don't feel that that's doing much, but it's the most I can do it at this point in my life. They're going to make a star of me. The people will scream and the critics will drool. They'll be walking, talking, breathing, sleeping, eating Raul. Little ladies, the kids in school. They'll be walking, talking, breathing, sleeping, eating Raul. Thanks to Jed Fewer for coming on the show and talking about Eating Raul, the musical. Of course, you can find out more about that at projection-booth.com. Now, Eating Raul, such a good film. We're big fans of it. Small, tiny little independent film. And they thought about a sequel. And Richard Blackburn, who you just heard recently on the show, about, I don't know, 10 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, said that he had worked on a script with Paul Bartel for a sequel to Eating Raul called Bland Ambition. So, gentlemen, we pass that around and strike up the hallelujah chorus. 
I actually read it. So wow. Yeah. So what do you think about bland ambition? Let's talk about the plot a little bit. I think uh the comic book is great. No, I didn't read it. <laughs> I have this no script reading policy that I can't get out of. Oh really? Cuz cuz if you read a script then you'll feel obliged to produce it. Oh, I, yes, that's why. <laughs> No, I can't take any unsolicited material. That's what it was. To me, it was unsolicited. I needed a letter from your agent before you sent it. <laughs> so I'll step out and let you guys talk about it. What, what, was, the, what was the sequel about? So, so go ahead, Rob. So Bland Ambition is basically kind of eating Raul characters. So we have Mary and we have Paul, and they have been running the restaurant and – what happens is they get pushed around by some politicians, and the governor's race of California is happening. So they decide to run as a unit, as a pair, for governor of California, the first couple to run for governor of California. <laughs> so it becomes a satire like on the ambition to get the money to open the restaurant. This becomes a satire on politics of, I would say, the late 90s. Yeah, and unfortunately there's not murder going on in this film like you really kind of hope that they would get ahead the same way that they did in eating raul by just killing anyone who stood in their way but unfortunately they're kind of tame in this film i would say and really the one who is wild is you know as they're running for governor they have to put up this nice front of normalcy so their campaign manager this real kind of scuzzy guy um decides that they should adopt a kid. So they adopt a child from this kind of lunatic asylum, and she's like the bad seed and um, has all these goofy friends, <laughs> which which was really – like she's in this orphanage kind of thing, but then she has friends on the outside, I guess. And so they hang out, and um, yeah, they, she's – She's not very nice, and um, really the focus of the movie, unfortunately, a lot of times becomes her and how she's manipulating uh, Paul and Mary, and I really – I kind of hate her through all the script. I don't know about you, Rob. Yeah, I mean she's kind of a bratty kid. It's kind of like if you took the kid from Problem Child and dropped him mm-hmm. into eating Raul but running for governor instead of killing people. So it's uh, kind of what it is. Yeah, and I just I felt like the focus was really taken off of Paul and Mary, and it really became more of her story, the little girl's story. And I don't know, I guess she was like a tween or something. I don't know how old she was, but she wanted all these things, and she kept trying to blackmail Paul and Mary for, um, you know, they were doing their whole campaign thing, and she would be an angel on camera as long as they were buying her stuff. And I don't know, I was really kind of hoping that they would end up killing her um, before the story was over. And um, I personally, I had a little bit of a hard time telling the – because they had two people that were running for office against Paul and Mary, if memory serves. They had the one guy who thought that aliens had taken over the earth, who I guess was the senator. And then they had the current governor who was kind of more active in trying to – uh, you know, discredit Paul and Mary, but there were times where I couldn't really tell the characters apart. 
Yeah, I could tell that as well. I mean, I don't know if this was a final, final, like they were going to go shoot this tomorrow kind of thing. I think it may have needed another couple of passes and maybe could have had another couple of passes if everything came together. Yeah, it was kind of weird because I went out and I was looking at when this was going to be made and it seemed to come up like quite a few times, like throughout the years, like they would say like in 84 or whatever, it was like, okay, yeah, we're going to shoot this next. And then 87, it's like, yep, gonna going to do bland ambition. And then I think the date on this script was 97, 98, something like that, because they were talking about the internet in this one. I was like, at first I was really taken aback, like, whoa, when the hell was this thing written? And then it's like, oh, okay, they, they updated it. All right. So that makes more sense now. It's like the, uh, the fourth Indiana Jones. They brought a kid in to make it younger, to get the young kids into the audience. There you go. Yeah. yeah. That was smart. Yeah. But it seems was, like, from what you're saying, like, they were writing the script and probably selling it to somebody. Like, they, they pitch an idea, and the person's like, I don't like it. Can we have a sequel to Eating Raul? And like, well, we got this idea. And they're like, we love it. Write it up. And then they sell it in 84. They sell it in 87. Maybe he has car payments. Maybe he needs to get his teeth fixed or something. And then... In 98, he's like, all right. She's like, I'm done doing dog food commercials. I got caught. Let's try to do it again. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because during our interviews with Richard Blackburn and Mary Voronoff, we talked to them about bland ambition. And um, it's kind of interesting, some of the casting and various things that could have been for the film and also sort of Mary's take on um, the script. First of all, we were thinking we should have a sequel anyway. And then the gal, I can't remember her name, she was in the Annie musical, uh, film musical. And she was under contract. And they, the, the studio had X amount of months or something on her contract and wanted a project for her. And when Spartel learned that, he said, we should use we should do a sequel which would have, have a part for this girl in it, this little girl. What could we do? And that's how it came to be. Oh, okay. Eileen Quinn, I think her name is. Is that right? Okay. Because they never, you know, I mean, got to the point where <clears throat> we, um, you know, we wrote it, the script was done, and in fact, it was, it was, it was uh, the, the money was all, the financing was in place, and I was going to direct it, and uh, Paul passed away, and everything fell, of course, pieces then. And I even went to um, to uh, John Waters, who we'd written a part for uh, in the film, and said, "Would you?" And I said, "I know you don't like to do stuff that you don't write yourself, but." And he said, "Oh, well, you're right. I I really don't want to do anything I don't write. But if you ever get it on, I will play that part you wrote." But it never did get on. So. So you've read it, you've seen what it is, and that's what it's hanging out there. And I don't think at this point, you know, um, it probably never will because um, the time between uh, eating Raul has been so long, and to put new people in it, you know, I don't know. It's just a, it's just it was a lost opportunity. Well, tell tell me more about how it was these kind of close calls. Cause I keep reading, like I, I've found newspaper articles from 
1984 where it's like next year we're going to do this and then i found another one from 1989 where it looked like it was going to go was it just constantly like what was getting in the way of it going just any number of things that 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 can happen you get somebody in place and then they drop out or then sir or somebody else comes in uh to you know a new suit comes in and they don't like the idea it's just a million there's a million as you know a million ways not reasons not to make a movie and the only reason to make it of course is to make money and there's a million reasons people can come up with why it won't so and they don't want to be the one to say yay if it turns out not to make money so it's better to say no but having said that uh cynical <laughs> what's well, i don't know cynical i think it's sort of realistic um it, it just got blocked in many different different times i can't even remember uh, it was on it was off it was on it was off and finally it was together and then it was definitely off when paul passed away so yeah i was curious because it seemed like it was the the one that you sent me was from 99 so when when i was reading about like you know i want internet access and all this kind of stuff you know the little girls demands and stuff i was like wow they i didn't realize that you had been constantly updating it as you were going along yes we did and we did a last i remember we i went to new york or was I in New York? I went there to work with Paul on a rewrite. That was when we were very close to getting it on. And and so it, it, it got rewritten several times to um, to modernize it and to keep up with things that had changed. You know, and I can remember I remember like we had we put in the whole idea of they had the restaurant and the restaurant was threatened by some kind of chain restaurant and that because all these chain restaurants were popping up more and more and so I think that was my idea to put that in anyway anyway but we were yeah we're trying to modernize it constantly and also with the with the young with the girl and her friends you know um, trying to keep that all current with the way uh, kids would talk and, and not have you know slang that sounded like something from Tom Brown's school days or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's real cool, Daddy-O. exactly <laughs> <laughs> right. That's one of the funniest things that you would ever see, of course, is when you see, um, you know, when um, juvenile delinquency, whatever you call it, rock and roll, whenever the movies or TV tries to do it, they're always like seem a generation behind. Right. And uh, with hysterical results. So, whatever. <laughs> anyway. So who would have John Waters played in that one? Uh, he would be. He was to be the um, uh, head of the orphanage. Where oh, that would have been perfect. Yeah, it would have been. Now, other than Paul and Mary and John and possibly Eileen Quinn, who else were you thinking for some of the roles? Like who would have been the uh, the senator or the uh, governor? Um, you know, I can I have no idea. I know a friend of mine. Who since passed on was to be the um, uh, he was to be their uh, uh, what do you call it the um, the guy that guides them through the politics. Uh, oh yeah, Jimmy the drunk guy. That's right? right. That's right. He 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 was to be that part. Um, I do not remember who the senator. I don't think we were that 
worried that we, we, we would just get, you know, some venerable actor and turn him loose. <laughs> it's just, but um, I don't think we had anything else, like, you know, pegged at that point. Tell me about the sequel to Eating Raul. Whatever happened to that one? Oh, I didn't care for it. And uh, I certainly wasn't the lead. I had a bit part. Oh, no. Yes. Well, what was it going to be if it wasn't, you know, Paul and Mary back in the saddle? Because it was someone else and Paul and Mary on the side. Oh, that's not good. Well, anyway, that's what I thought. That's not good. But I didn't say no, but it never got made. No one liked it. So they were seriously going to do it. It wasn't just a, a kind of money grab. Yeah, it seemed like they were actually going to do it. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, Mary wasn't too happy with it. She said that it seemed more like Paul and this girl, and she really didn't have much to do. Yeah, that seems like a well. Yeah, why would you take her out of the movie? It just seemed like an excuse to make another movie. Do you know what I mean? Like we're disguised as a sequel, but it's really a movie with me and a kid. Right. Yeah. It's it's like um, Mary Sue. Isn't that 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 movie? Susie Q. Mary. Well, there was that Curly Sue. <sighs> Curly, Curly Sue. Sue. It's yes. It's subversive. Mary, Susie Q. Yes. Very Susie Q. Thanks once again to Richard Blackburn and Mary Warnoff for uh, sharing about Bland Ambition. And um, I don't think you can get the script out there. Maybe you can find it somewhere if you're interested in reading about it, if you want to be a completist about all things Paul Bartel and eating Raul. Um, if you can, great. It, it's kind of interesting to read. Um, but as we said, it probably needs another pass or two. So we did talk a little bit about other Paul Bartel films. This version on the Criterion collection is great it has the film it looks wonderful there's uh audio commentary there's interviews with various folks there's the uh the two early short films underground shorts from paul bartell on there but also wanted to talk about um and we talked a little bit about it uh bartell's other films now beyond death race 2000 which of course mr spiegelman you were on there with us um what other paul bartell films have you seen did you like and would you recommend uh, I, I gotta say that I really thought that Eating Raul was my favorite. I thought the uh, scenes from Class Struggle, I felt like it was more self conscious of what it was. You know, it wasn't as good as Eating Raul. And then, less is dust until now, I thought it was John Waters' film. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really, I would have to say this is my favorite and uh, a sentimental favorite. And then Death Race, which I've seen a couple of times, one time for you guys, I like it more and more every time I see it. So, I'd have to say Death Race and uh, Eating Raul are neck and neck. Yeah, I, I'm pretty much with you right there. You know, we mentioned the Secret Cinema earlier. I definitely recommend that. Um, yeah, uh, Amazing Stories I think is still streaming on Netflix, so you can probably find that episode out there. Um, I remember liking Shelf Life when I finally tracked down a copy of that. It's been a long time since I've seen it, and I don't know if that's ever come out officially or not it must have come out somehow because there are bootleg copies of it floating around and then i don't think that i've ever seen that for publication which i probably should since you know i'm kind of a nancy allen fan and she's in that one so one of these days i will have to track down not for publication and see how that plays have you seen that one rob no i haven't seen that one uh the other one i haven't seen is private parts and our friends over at outside the cinema recently reviewed that Yes, they have, and I. it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but it seems, if memory serves, that was a little bit more bloody than most Bartels, but 
it still had uh, the edge of subversion that uh, a lot of his other stuff has. I think that's pre-Corman and pre-Death Race, if I remember. It's like early 70s, maybe 73. Yeah, yeah. 70, 73, 72, something like that. Yeah, and then um, I have Class Struggle. I haven't had a chance to really go through it, although I did watch about the first 20 minutes before the episode. And um, I know that it was very much influenced by a film we're going to talk about in December, of course, um, my favorite film. The uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, because he's got a title card in there uh, thanking uh, Bunuel. So am I going to have to watch that one before we do Discreet Charm? Probably not, but no? I just okay. thought I would throw that out there. As, you have to I read the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't read any solicited material, yeah. unsolicited material. Yeah. Or solicited. Or solicited. I don't solicit any men <laughs> under the overpass on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, I used to get scenes from A Class Struggle in Beverly Hills mixed up with Down and Out in Beverly Hills, the Mazursky film, all the time. So hopefully there's nothing to do from one to the other because I really can't handle Nick Nolte as a as a bum again. There's a lot of crossover between the Eating Raul cast and uh, scenes from A Class Struggle. Um, Robert Beltran's in it, Mary Vornoff's in it, Susan Sager's in it, uh, Paul Bartel, of course. So there's there's a lot of crossover between. But is the films. real Don Steele? Is it? I don't know. I didn't watch far enough, and I didn't look at the credits. So I don't. He's definitely not in the front credits. He might be in the end credits. So you can't review oh. it then. He's not on it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Actually, I just found out that Paul Mazursky was in scenes from a class struggle in Beverly Hills. What the hell is this? What? I, I'm I'm confused now. He made a movie called Down and Out in Beverly Hills, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, it was a good movie. And Beverly okay. Hills 90210 and Beverly Hills Teens, the uh, cartoon show. So he's done what everything about, Beverly Hills. What about Troop Beverly Hills? He did yes, that. Troop that was Beverly Hills. Oh, Jesus. Wow. <laughs> he's got a copyright. Yeah. yeah. Beverly Hills Chihuahua or whatever. Right, right, right. That's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But Bartel, when he shows up, just even in bit parts and stuff, is always great as an actor. And um, and even bigger roles, such as uh, Hollywood Boulevard, which is on the Netflix Instant right now. You can get that. Lust in the Dust is on Netflix Instant as well. And um, I remember he's got just a small part in The Usual Suspects. Uh, you know, crazy. I watched that over the weekend. My wife had never seen it. I was like, oh, you got to watch this movie. It's so good. And then he comes on the screen. He's like, oh, my God, I'm just watching his film. Uh, it's so hard to watch that movie now with someone who's never seen it and try <laughs> and not ruin it, you know, the whole time. Right. And at one point, she guessed the ending, and I was like, "Nah, that sounds crazy. Who would, <laughs> who would do that?" Well, it's kind of nice. Uh, Paul and Mary show black. Uh, Paul and Mary show back up in Chopping Mall, um, the Jim Wynorski film, as Paul and Mary Bland. I don't know. I can't remember if they say their names or not and then dick miller's in it as walter paisley the role that he played when he was in uh bucket of blood yeah so it was that was a nice little um corman school reunion kind of thing going on there and for me i mean bartell showing up in like frank and weenie or amazon women on the moon um especially amazon women on the moon and then killer party is one of my favorite horror films. And I've been hoping that we could cover that on the show sometime, but I cannot seem to get any sort of response from the writer or director of that one. Cause I would love to cover killer party one of these days. I don't know that one. 
it's available on Warner Archives. It's a horror film, and what I love about it is it starts off as one movie, and then it changes to another movie, and then it changes to a third movie, and I think that's finally the one that sticks around. And it's uh, it, it's kind of a goofy, like, we're uh, going to initiate... It's kind of like Sorority Girls with the Slimeball Bowl Rama, but good. So... <laughs> <laughs> why ruin it yeah 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 so yeah it's a it's a good flick highly recommend it oh and then of course the um gremlins 2 the new batch as the theater manager paul bartell was incredible in that like five second role i think whenever he's in something since you if you've seen one of his films you're in on the joke whenever he's in the movie whether they're playing the blands or they're together or separate it, it feels like a nod to you like you saw eating raul Here's Paul Bartell, or here's Mary Warnoff, you know? Right. Well, him showing up in, like, Posse actually made me laugh quite a bit, especially because he's on screen with, um, oh, God, I'm fucking blanking on names tonight. He's on screen with Isaac Hayes, and they're, like, photo negatives of each other. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like, whoa, I never realized that before. And they're standing, like, you know, one next to the other kind of thing. It's like, oh, yeah. All right. So uh, we got anything else to say about Eating Raul or the films of Paul Bartel? Yeah, I just said Eating Raul is just one of those movies that kind of opens up your mind. It's over when I was younger, obviously, but that films can be anything instead of – because you watch like Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which is a fine movie, but it's so formula that, you know, mm-hmm. this happens, this happens, everyone, everyone's life is better. But everyone's life is better in Eating Raul because they killed people. <laughs> and they ate their right. partner, who, you know, and uh, so it's just great to see like the movies of Paul Martel that he can take something and just screw with it and uh, made it good enough that you can follow along with it. All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You've lost the urge to experiment. Oh, every time you touch me, I go out of my mind. Her brain kept alive by experimental science, by a man whose abnormal passions inspired him to try the impossible. I brought her back. She'll live and I'll get her another body. Yes, and what of her soul? How can you make of her an experiment of horror? His mad ambitions and desires threaten every woman possessing an attractive body. Girls whose measurements make them beauty contest participants. Professional figure models such as this. All are prey to his distorted desires. What's locked behind that door? Horror. No normal mind can imagine. Something even more terrible than you. Horror has its ultimate. And I'm that. Behind that door is the sum total of Dr. Cordner's mistakes. He intends to kill somebody. To rob them of their body. We've got to stop him. That's right. We're back next week with the 1959 sci-fi cult classic, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. 
Joining us is Kevin Heffernan, the author of Ghouls, Gimmicks, and Gold, Horror Films in the American Movie Business, 1953 to 1968. I want to thank this week's special guests, Richard Blackburn, Mary Warnoff, Susan Sager, and Jed Fewer. You can find out more about them at projection-booth.com. Also, our special guest co-host, Mr. Adam Spiegelman, for joining us this week. Now, you, of course, were on Death Race 2000. It was great to have you on there. It's great to have you back. I'm a huge fan of what you're doing over at Proudly Resents. That's right, Resents, not Presents. So what's the latest over there, sir? Oh, thanks, Ben. Uh, yeah, we, I interviewed... Um Robert Pritchard, who was in the movie Toxic Avenger, about uh, his experience playing the bad guy and the the jerk in that film. And then uh, we have some good movies. We did Sister Act 2. Just a fun episode. Totally different. The people on it were singing, and it was a lot of fun. But I also got to interview Shadow Stevens, who uh, you know as the announcer, but he starred in an 80s Rambo comedy called Tracks. Now, you got to be careful with that interview with Shadow Stevens. Have you already put it up? I haven't put it up yet. Why? Oh, you got to be careful because we had an interview with Shadow Stevens once here on the projection booth. This is pre-Rob, uh-huh. and that interview got deleted. That interview and the interview with Robert Davi for for the tracks episode deleted. So you better put that up right away. You don't want the same thing to happen to you that happened to me. Oh my God, I was just looking for it on my computer. Oh, ah. Jesus. careful. Shadow Stevens, he's mercurial. He'll slip through your fingers. Did he talk about the movie with you, or did he try to talk about his career more? Um, You know, I never actually heard the interview, Ah! because it's my partner in crime that did it, and then, yeah, deleted it off of his hard drive. Unbelievable. We had, uh, that is so heartbreaking. Uh, All right, well then, I'll give you my my Shadow Stevens interview, and you can just replace my voice. Drop it right in there? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now, a long-awaited interview with Shadow Stevens. I found it! (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Your episode on uh, Mrs. Doubtfire was classic. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she uh, she wrote an article about things she never never understood about Mrs. Doubtfire. And uh, so we just kind of went through the... the Isn't that movie a horror film? It, it certainly is horrible, yes. But just watching it, it just felt like, like a Brian De Palma film. Like, yeah, yeah, like a creepy, um, creepy transvestite who's lurking and waiting. Yeah, and, and secretly watching his kids and no one knowing it. And he could have, I guess you could just steal the movie and have him kill the boyfriend instead of hitting him with an orange. Right. <laughs> Shoot him in the head. It would have fit. We love Robin Williams. Oh, my God. We let him get away with everything. Oh, yeah. We want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to return the favor, feel free to head on over to our website, projection-booth.com, and click on the Donate button, where you can send us a couple bucks via PayPal in return for the quality shows that you get every single day of your life. You know, we've only done about 143 or so of them. And you can listen to those via iTunes, Stitcher, or our brand new free app, which you can get for your smartphone, be it Amazon, be it iPhone or Android, or you can even get it for your Kindle Fire if you're one of those kind of people. And remember, this Thanksgiving, service some bland enchiladas.
Bruce Miles, boy. What are you doing over there by the fence? None of your damn business. I'm the host here, goddammit. Now get out of your clothes and get into the hot tub or get the hell out. Yeah. We don't want any wet blankets or spoiled sports at this party. We're here to swim.